This is the Manga Mavericks podcast from AllComic.com, episode 153. We are a podcast not only dedicated to talking about manga as a medium, but as an industry. I'm Colton. And I'm Lamariasha, and today we are screaming out our love for a silent voice all the way to the moon. That's right, it's our long-awaited retrospective of Yoshitoki Oima's really heartfelt modern classic story of redemption, of growth and maturity. It is definitely one of our favorite manga, and we had some really incredible guests on to talk about it with us. We have, returning to the show, our friend Vix. We have Corey Surjak from the Taiku Podcast and Manga New Ears. And we have first time coming on the show, Marco Oliveros, who is a freelance animator, tutorial writer who's worked for ANN and Crunchyroll Anime Feminist and is also an ALT teacher in Japan. And what's great about this conversation on Asan's voice is that not only do we discuss the characters in Dino series very deeply, but we also discuss it in the cultural context of how childhood bullying propagates in classrooms, thanks to the perspective of both Vix and Marco having worked in Japan as school teachers of elementary age children. And also, Corey is able, was able to share some insights also on the challenges with dealing with kids with disabilities, because his mother also works with children with disabilities. And so we had like a really great range of experiences on to share insights on assigned voice and the topics and themes it discusses. And I thought it ended up a really fantastic conversation, a really wordy analysis of a series that we all really love and is close to our hearts. No, yeah, for sure. This was a, this was a long time coming, our retrospective on a silent voice. You know, I mean, I, I, as we mentioned in in the discussion, you know, I myself have podcasted about it at least two times at this point, you know, b- beforehand. So, you know, I'm glad that I myself was able to like able to come back to this and uh, uh, and, and and talk about it again because you know, a silent voice is legitimately like one of my favorite manga of all time. So, mm-hmm. before we can even get to a silent voice, though. And, man, I don't want to hold my tongue, because we have a lot to say on Sonic Voice. There is some news we need to catch up on that we were not able to get to last time. And this is mostly running the gamut of some new licensing news in terms of the anime side of things and the adaptation side of things, as well as some popular Porvisoak news. Before we even get into all that, we have kind of an industry story to talk about, because recently there was a big controversy because it was discovered that Seven Seas' releases of Wish Your Tensei and Classroom of the Elite, the light novel series, those had some very strange editorial edits on those series. Like, there were complete passages, paragraphs of those series, either omitted or rewritten and altered outright in a way that goes beyond simple translation. In particular, there were some text comparisons posted on Reddit comparing some passages on Gotham Elite Volume 7 that showed that entire descriptive Paragraphs of prose and dialect from the original Japanese novels were omitted in Seven Seas' version, and in response to that, Seven Seas is going to reissue the volume in both print and digital form. But this also is even uh, more significant in the case of Mushiro Tensei, which has had a lot of controversy surrounding it because its protagonist is, well, 
to put it bluntly, is a pedophile. And in the light novel series, there are a lot of kind of rapey things that he does, including a scene in chapter three of the second volume where he is groping and attempting to pull off the panties of a sleeping girl. Like in the Seven Seas version, they rewrote that so instead he's trying to pull a shirt over something to offend her Captain Cole, which is a completely different connotation and change of characterization and intention from the original. And I am not really interested in this original text, and it sounds pretty uh, repugnant to me personally. I mean, no offense to people who do, I guess, enjoy a series or whatever, but... Yeah, I, I think that this goes beyond simple translation here, and definitely is not a translation choice, because the translator series weighed in on this, and they didn't even know that this was happening. They didn't know that the translations they sent in, which were faithful to the original text, were being like completely changed by editorial. So, the translators spoke up, both Alyssa Ortonikoka and Paul Coeno on this, and they said, you know, they're, they both were on the agreement of like, hey, our job is like to present the author's original intent as best we can and then like these were not our choices these are editorial choices and translators you know we turn on our scripts and we don't get file sand like what is actually printed what the editors changed and whatnot and seven season statement is kind of they kind of walk around the issue and saying oh you know we we did this because this our goal is to provide accurate translations to reflect the author's intent but we we can't you know, just, uh, translation's an art. So sometimes we kind of have to, you know, change some things to make it, you know, polished, commercially viable, whatever. And it's always a judgment call, but we realize that with this case, we are uh, kind of towing the line. And they they only really say that they're going to change how they handle Classroom Elite, and specifically Volume 7. They're going to kind of revise what they did with that, but we know show tends to say they aren't really committal. They're saying they they just say they are reevaluating their editorial choices, but will make adjustments. So they kinda they kinda again tiptoe the problem as like company PR is often doing, but I mean, you gotta wonder is like, did they really know what they were in for when they licensed the series? If they have to like completely rewrite it essentially to make it sellable? And for an athlete audience, like, it is such a crazy, crazy uh, story. Like, they they thought, like, they, surely they would expect that people would notice that they outright are removing text from the series, removing entire paragraphs, and changing, like, <laughs> the actual events of the story to remove mention of the fact that there's questionable content in it. And it's, it's just very strange a story to me. <laughs> Yeah, it, it is kind of weird. I mean, it's it's so interesting to like be talking about Mushoku uh, Musho Tensei now because like I'm pretty sure when we first like talked about this being licensed that like I don't think either of us were interested because we were as far as we knew this was just like another like boilerplate isekai thing. Yeah, it's uh, we didn't even know how bad it was with its protagonist like again literally being a pedophile and a rapist, essentially, if what I'm reading about what the actual content of the series is from what they changed. So it's like, yeah, that is certainly, I, I don't know what they, they clearly either had to change who they were targeting this art, this book to, or they, 
it maybe shouldn't have licensed this in the first place. If they if this content was so overline that they can't they could, felt they couldn't sell it as it was. Yeah, I mean it's it's it, it was a weird move all around. I mean, like you know, I'm I'm of two minds of this because like, one, I'm like th- this is this is not something I don't think I'm ever planning on like. reading or like interacting with it really just doesn't sound like my kind of thing at all no no matter how beautifully animated the anime is apparently i just i'm just not interested in this kind of content at all but i mean you know as, as as much as i'm not into this content at all i do think i don't think it's a good look to like try and like hide this stuff necessarily even if it is questionable like you license this thing, like, you, in my opinion, when you license something and you're translating something, you should, I don't think you should, like, actively hide this stuff. Like, it's, I, even if the content is questionable, I just don't think it's a good look. Yeah, it's just dishonest. You're obfuscating what the content of the series is by doing this. I mean, this, this is like, like localization of kids anime by four kids level kind of changes of like completely rewriting the text to remove content you don't want your audience to see but like you can't that doesn't fly with this light novel series that is aimed at teenagers and young adults who are obviously going to raise a fuss about this because especially in this day and age people will find out they'll know what's been taken out Mm-hmm. Like, you who are you trying to fool? Yeah, exactly. It's just, it's just weird. Like th- this, almost this kind of reminds me of when Funimation had Interspecies Reviewer or whatever that series is called. I think that's the title of that series. Yeah, Interspecies Reviewers. Yeah, and they just, they just like took it off their thing, and now like you just can't watch that anymore. Yeah, though it was licensed by Right Stuff. Who are going to release it? Oh, so it's that was a problem of like they did not know that it was like borderline pornographic content in that series that they couldn't get away with like putting on their app, which is it's not necessarily an old ages app, but that toes it over the line of being like an eighteen plus. So they they definitely couldn't get away with having that series. So yeah, it's just it's just kind of the. The consequences of, you know, a lot of, with anime licensing in particular, like, a lot of these deals are done without really even seeing the show. It's just, like, they bid on a premise, essentially, and yeah. snatch it up as quick as possible because it's on race. And in this case, I think this, with uh, Seven Seas, is probably a deal, it's also probably the same kind of thing. Like, they saw a premise, they saw that it was doing well, and they picked it up without really investigating the type of content in it or this was part of like a deal with the publisher to pick up this among other series and they kind of were stuck with a series with content in it that they couldn't really sell to a mass market so they had to write around it but overall it kind of shows kind of the consequences of doing business that way (sighs) yeah but i mean i guess i guess for those who care about the series it looks like they're going to change back to what it was originally was, you know, eventually. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. We'll we'll see what the future is for these kind of series and how Seven Seas is going to handle this. Mm-hmm. 
But now let's move on to some uh, nice, interesting, like, anime kind of licensing slash accessibility uh, news for us North American viewers. And there was some, uh, there was a big deal between Toei and Toby TV to bring a bunch of cool classic shows over to that service, including one we've never gotten in this up before. Yeah, uh, that one is Dr. Slump. Apparently, that will be available on Tubi TV at some point, though. And I, I think um, uh, Joey and I were talking about this on Twitter in particular. So, amongst everything else, Dr. Slump is one of the series that uh, that Toei will be bringing on to Tubi TV eventually. But just kind of picking apart their like press release and stuff, they mentioned... They mentioned in particular that like the the combined like but basically all the shows combined that they're bringing out it's going to be like at least 500 episodes worth of content or more. So like you know assuming that like that is the cap like that's exactly like how much is coming over to 2B TV. You know, I saw Joey trying to do the math and like there's a small possibility that like there's a couple possibilities here. So one is that they'll probably bring over like some of the original Dr. Slump TV anime. Cause that first anime is like over 200 episodes long, like maybe closer to 300. I think if somewhere in that range Two forty-three. So they'll probably bring over like some of that, maybe like put a batch of it now and like add some more later. Yeah. Or there's also a possibility that maybe they'll bring over, like, one of the later, uh, smaller run slump series. We don't really know for well, sure. The, the 90s one, yeah, that was only about 70-ish episodes. So we really don't know which slump we're getting. I'd be fine with either of them, but yeah, it's, it is interesting to see which one they'd choose, mm-hmm. for sure. I mean, when they say there are 500 episodes of anime they're bringing over, like... <laughs> the big thing we have to wonder is how much of that is just One Piece? Because obviously One Piece is going to be added to 2B. One Piece is over 500 episodes. So doing the math, like depending on how much One Piece is coming over, I guess we'll figure out how much of the rest is coming over respectively. Because there are other long-running series that they announced they're bringing over too. Yeah, so I did see that they they did confirm that it was the first 100, 130 episodes of One Piece. All right, so I guess there you go. Mm-hmm. I mean, that definitely leaves a lot of room for the, the rest of these then, because Torco is like 150, and then Slam Dunk's about 100-ish. Kataro, it depends on the series, which series this is. That's that's another thing, because there are multiple Kataro series, so is this going to be the recent one? Is it going to be the original classic? Is it going to be one of the ones in between? We don't really know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's also another really big thing is that we are getting a Kitaro anime of some kind. We don't know which one yet. That's also another one of these that I'm really looking forward to, along with Saint Seiya, uh, Sunita Show, and Hades in particular, because that's that's the last arc of the original that like was available on Crunchyroll, but like got taken off eventually. Yeah, it's been a while since Hades has been uh, legally streaming, so I'm glad that will be added again. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Again, a lot of stuff coming from Toei eventually. I'm, I checked just now, and I, I don't think any of it is on there yet. The only thing on there are the One Piece specials that they announced that they'd add. Those are on there, but okay. the shows aren't yet. Okay, okay. This makes me wonder, and I, I haven't 
I haven't checked recently, and this might be a small tangent, but uh, I wonder if they, um, I'm checking really quickly right now, and um, I don't think they've put up those Anpan Man movies yet. No, I don't think so. So we'll see when it takes to be to finally upload all this stuff. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I think this is really cool, just in general. I mean, aside from the huge additions of Dr. Slump and, K- and Kitaro, like, it is nice to see Toei finally put some of their stuff, uh, especially stuff that hadn't been licensed anywhere else somewhere, you know, finally. And I mean, 2B TV, if anybody hasn't used it, like, it's such a weird service because it's like, it's a very, like, eclectic collection of a lot of different things, like a lot of different movies and shows that, like, I'm assuming, like, not a lot of people really watch, honestly. A lot of, like, older movies, a lot of shows that, like, I didn't even know were, like, streaming anywhere. Like, a lot of stuff that I'm sure was, like, probably cheap to get also. But yeah, it's just it's just nice to see that, especially for Dr. Slum, we'll finally have a place to watch it. Like, I'm, I'm definitely going to be checking that out as soon as it's uploaded. Most definitely. I'm very excited to see some more classic anime become more legally accessible. And that is especially true of Yurisei Astra, specifically the movies. All six movies of Astra are streaming on Crunchyroll now, ahead of when Discotheque is going to probably release them on home video later this year. And I'm very excited that, you know, they're very readily accessible for people to watch right now on Crunchyroll, both sub and dub. So this is a great first step in getting the Yurisei anime as a whole kind of just more legally available as well in streaming. So with these movies as a start, I hear moving that, you know, we'll get the TV series and OVAs licensed eventually, and those will be made available soon. So this has been like a really, really nice week if you've been a Yurisei fan. Like it's been, this is some great news. Ooh, so they, um, so they, I see, I didn't even know this. They added uh, the three other movies. That's really cool. Yeah, all six movies are available. Wow. Which which one of these did you say was your favorite again? I forget. Well, my favorite, like many, is Beautiful Dreamer, the second one, which in many ways is kind of Matt Moro Oshi's like artist statement. Like that is like him like really branching out and developing kind of the the ethos that he would later explore in his later films. But also it is a commentary on Yurisiatsu itself and the characters hmm. then a very compelling way. However, rivaling my love for Beautiful Dreamer is Alone the Forever, which is more contentious entry in the franchise. It's either a love it or hate it film for people, but I think Yamazaki's kind of experimentalness with that film is also a really great commentary on nostalgia and fandom and kind of having to let grow and grow up. And I thought that it's just such a fascinating film that it definitely captures my imagination and attention. So I really love that one as well. Hmm. And um, I guess uh, as, as someone who's only read like probably six-ish volumes of Urusei Yatsura, would you, would you say these movies are worth watching even if if I've only read like that much? Or I would say you can watch all, you can watch the first four. The fifth one is like the end of the series ah, okay, so okay. i personally feel it is best appreciated if you know the context of what is came for because there 
is character development here say outstrap the relationship between them and taro does grow okay so if i think the best understand that you do say that for the end and then the sixth movie is you know that sixth movie just has like some characters and elements that you know are introduced way later in the series that now you could watch it but it's definitely a later series style movie that you might as well wait until you're in the later part of the series of the manga to watch. I personally, I mean, it's not the, even though it was made after the final chapter, the final chapter is the ending of the series. So personally, I recommend people watching that before that because the characterization is often that's a huge criticism of that film in particular, that a lot of people don't like it because the characterization for Lominataru is kind of regressed from where it should be at that point. There's some fun stuff with other characters, but I that, that is also something that always kind of irked me about it. But otherwise, it's a fun time. Okay. But yeah, I think in generally, most people can watch the first four films and enjoy them just fine. If you haven't gotten to Ryanosuke, I mean, she just, she isn't that big a factor in those films. She does show up and she's like kind of a She's a character that doesn't show up until volume 15, if you don't know who she is. But yeah, it's not a big deal, because she's not really a focal character. Mm-hmm. I just, I, I feel I feel like I should get to these at some point, but also, like, I just need to read more Udusei Yatsura. Mm-hmm. I haven't had the chance to read, like, a ton, like, a, like much more after uh, after we recorded that episode. I need to get back on that. Mm-hmm. But speaking of film projects, we've also got... Uh, cool new development because Amazon is looking to develop a live action housing film from the writer of John Wick and Marvel's Falcon Winter Soldier series, Derek Kolstad. So this is a interesting thing. I mean, housing is full of a ton of like over top gun action. So John Wick films are really well written in that regard. So yeah, this could have the potential to be a really cool in adaptation film so there's also a bunch of other names attached to this project and yeah i'm I'm just curious to see live action housing from north american studio how that's gonna turn out just as someone who like just recently watched all three john wick movies i have to say this sounds like it's gonna kick ass and i would love to see how this turns out actually yeah yeah Speaking of adaptation news, though, we've got one that I think we've been anticipating for a long time, though it hasn't been formally announced yet, but the Spy Family Net domain name has been registered, and a Twitter account for at Spy Family Dash Anime has been opened, and this pattern reflects what happened, what registrations and accounts were created before the launches of the We Never Learn and Platinum End anime. So with this pattern, I think it's inevitable that we will see a Spy Family announcement soon. And obviously the manga is super huge. So I think the anime will only encourage an explosion of interest and popularity of the series. So very much looking forward to see who is going to be attached to produce the anime, animate the series, and how it's going to turn out. Ooh, Spy Family anime. Gimme, gimme, gimme. I need it. Mm-hmm. But speaking of popular things, let's talk about some popularity polls. And let's start off with 
a opening ending poll kind of following up on what we talked about. We discussed the interim results uh, for the 1000th episode of Detective Conan. They held a favorite opening ending poll for the series where you could vote on like whatever your favorite openings and endings were from Detective Conan. And they'd all be like ranked right before the release of the 1000th episode. And indeed, that has happened. And the top three vaults are basically the same as what the top three were in the interim. Like Red Lip, Makado Lip from Wands, that's number one. Secret of My Heart from Mikaraki, number two. And Mystery from Miyokamatsu, that is third place. And then they did post the top 20 results, and there are some interesting inclusions in the top 20. Some placements surprised me, but yeah, I, I think these are all generally, I could see them being pretty popular. Mm-hmm. I was glad to see Sissy Sky. A rank so high, that's the 61st ED. It's a hyper focus ED. I really like that song. And there's some really like good visuals in that. I I do find it interesting that like the ending team that was like very Conan and Murrow focused was very ranked high up, which I think though makes sense considering how popular Murrow is. This was the ending team that they used in like early twenty eighteen, like before the release of Zero the Enforcer, which is why it's so Murrow focused is like hyping that up. And then I think the one everyone was kind of thinking would rank high because it's kind of very memeable is Love is Trail Shock Suspense because it, you know, influence on Conan dancing. Uh, that only came in ninth place, hmm. but I mean, still top 10. It's still pretty high up. Yeah. Then the opening from Clash vs. Red is Black, like Love is in the Dark. That was number 12. So I was glad to see that one on here. A Truth, the fifth opening of the series, is another one of my favorites. That came in number 13. Uh, another one of my favorites is, like, The World Will Be Recovered. This was, like, the one that also uses the song that plays as the ending theme as the of uh, the 20th movie, Darkest Nightmare, which is also why the the opening used a lot of motifs from the film, like the amusement park Ferris wheel, and it's promoting Conan as, like, this big action-heavy kind of show, almost. So uh, I, I remember when that opening came out and everyone was freaking out like, whoa, what is this is like insanely animated and like full of like super over the top action stuff. Yeah, that came at number 14. So pretty popular. The sucks not bad either. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there are a lot of uh, other ones here that I enjoy. Uh, Giri Giri Chop came at number 17. That one, I liked the song, but I was disappointed by that opening because it just reuses visuals from the previous opening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It <laughs> just has like random like concert footage and explosions. Yeah, it's it's so. it's not the best one visually speaking. No. But uh it is among the Japanese voters' favorite stuff. Hmm. So I will I mean we'll link the full list for y'all to peruse which were Japanese fans' favorites. I mean, were there any surprises you had, Colton? I mean I think the biggest surprise is that neither the first opening or first E D were in the top twenty. That's which you think I, there would be some nostalgia there, but I I call I call I call bullshit. That's that's not fair. Step by step deserves to be in the top ten, but that's just me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I don't have much else to add. I mean, uh, I I'm at least glad that um that mystery uh opening for uh, or uh, was it opening four? Is it ending three four? three got placed on the list. Uh, pretty high. That's opening a- four is pretty high up at uh, number five. Umeiro Red. I really like that song. Plus, I I even like the uh, 
uh, the redone version that they did like years later. Uh, they're they're both pretty good. You know, in general, you can notice a pattern of like some very popular singers, like songs from very popular artists. Like there are a lot of Zard songs, there are a lot of Rina Ayuchi songs and Garnet Crow songs. So it seems that fans really like those artists in particular. It's interesting that Mai Karaki, who probably has done the most songs for Conan, she only really has one entry on this list, but mm. it is second place, so I guess there you go. Yeah, that that's interesting. I also kind of thought there'd be more, um, well, I guess I'm, I'm kind of looking here real quick. I kind of thought there'd be at least a few more Bees songs, but I guess- Yeah, there's only really two. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I guess taste in music for the Conan fandom change over time, yeah. I guess. I really like Question Answer, the 35th opening, so I'm disappointed that didn't come in here. I personally like that better than Gary Gear Shop. I mean, Gary Gear Shop is memorable, but again, the opening itself is just reusing footage. I, I always thought the song was fine, personally. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I guess out, outside of that, I mean, it seems like a pretty solid list, I would say. Yeah. And again, I, I'm incredibly impressed that... Uh, one of the most recent openings is people's favorite, but it is a great song. I listen to it a lot. I also appreciated Kaiser Neko Scott's, like, kind of shit post on the opening, where he compared it to, like, that song in Phineas DeFer, where, like, uh, Doofenshmirtz and Perry do, like, the dance video routine. Because, like, the beat and the voice of the Monsinger and the... I think it's Swampy Marsh sings it in Phineas Ferb thing. Like, they have similar voices and the beat is similar. So it, it was like a funny shit post comparing the two. Oh. And people took it seriously that they thought it was actual plagiarism. But it's just a it was just a joke about how <laughs> similar they, they are by pure coincidence. Kaiser Neko's shit posts are on, are, are on a whole other level. Yeah. I love their stuff. Mm-hmm. But moving on, we've got some character popularity polls, including a big one. I mean, we don't have like the full results out yet, but the interim results of that One Piece character popularity poll. All right, yeah the the world the worldwide poll again preliminary results, but I'm I'm sure eventually we'll have the full results and won't mm -hmm. go over those two. Yeah, the poll has ended at the time of this recording, so I'm sure we'll get those results at some point soon. Mm hmm. Uh, I can go over the top 10 here real quick that we have so far, uh, starting from the bottom up. At number 10, we have Shanks, who, you know, isn't in the series a lot, but when he is, he always makes a he always makes an impact. Still probably one of the best characters in the entire series. Mm -hmm. At number nine, we have Hancock, who, you know, I wasn't a super huge fan of at first, but I think she's kind of grown on me since her first appearance, honestly. She's fun. Yeah. At number eight, we have Sabo, uh, one of the many Poochies in, in the One Piece universe. Yeah. At number seven, we have Nami, with uh, Robin coming in at number six after that. This is a surprise, because Nami is usually the most popular female character, and Robin hasn't been in the top ten for a long time. So I think Robin's stands are really coming out to vote for her this time. I think Grant is very happy. I was going to say, I'm 100% sure Grant led the charge on that, probably. Mm. <laughs> At number five, we have Ace, the second other Poochie in the One Piece the universe. The original. The original, yes. Along with Law at number four. Still kind of a Poochie, but, you know. He has more character development. Yeah. More interesting, personally. 
Yeah, I was going to say, I think Law's interesting. I like him. I like mm. him enough. And then the top three is not a huge surprise. At number three, we yeah, have Sanji. Number two, Zoro. And number one, Luffy, the king. Yeah. Even with these world results, the top three remains the same. Yep. Everybody loves the, the, the monster three, as I think people still call them, you know? Yeah. I think it's interesting when you compare by region some, like, the the variants that come in there. I think some very popular characters just outside this top 10 that are among the most popular in the top 10 in other and just specific countries or regions. Like, we have Yamacho and Usopp and Katakuri are very commonly uh, favorited choices. And then there are some stray ones that are also favorited in certain regions. Like, Japan really likes Roshiante. It ranks number seven for them. Latin America and Caribbean, they really like Carrot. She's number five. Hmm. And in North America, for some reason, uh, Whoop Slap is number seven. Uh, the mayor from Luffy's hometown. So I, I, there must have been some sort of viral campaign. No, I'm I'm pretty that. I'm pretty sure I saw that somewhere around where like w- one of the bigger like One Piece YouTubers was also like leading the charge in on that in particular. Yeah, but yeah, no, I mean, um, I can't say I'm like super surprised at like at the prelim results, but like personally, I'm you know. I'm also a huge Robin fan. I love her so much, so I'm 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 glad she was able to make it into the top ten. Yeah. Looking at where the top hundred is right now is very interesting in terms of placements. I think I feel bad for Frankie for being the lowest ranked straw head if you don't count going Mary at like number thirty. Oh man. So that's too bad for I know him. Steve in particular was pretty sad about that. Yeah. But uh yeah, I'm curious to see if the final top 10 shakes out the same as these interims or if some of the stragglers just outside break in Mm. like maybe there's going to be some momentum for Yamato in particular I think so uh, I'm curious maybe I'm not sure if I really expect these to change like too drastically but it'll it'll be interesting to see what the final results are when those come out there were some crazy last minute campaigns to boost the ranks of some characters like I know that for North America, like, uh, I think Columbus, for some reason. <laughs> or not not in America, I think it was uh, Europe, for some reason. We're voting for Columbus a lot, so, <laughs> yeah. That's pretty good. We'll see. We'll see where Columbus lands at the final tally. I guess so. But we have another poll we need to talk about. Yeah, this held their own Jujutsu Kaisen popularity poll over the span of like a week or two, and very quickly posted the results of that. Unfortunately, they didn't provide like numbers for how many people voted for whom, but uh, some interesting results. I'll go through the top 10 first before commenting on who made the top 25, but from bottom up, we've got Toji Fushiguro, 9 is Sukuna, 8 is Akotsu, 7 is Toto, Boogie Woogie Boy himself. Six is Inomaki, five is Nobara, four is Nanami, three is Fushiguro, two is Itadori, and one, of course, the king reigning champ Satoru Gojo. People love that beautiful, beautiful gremlin of a man. I have only seen two episodes of Jujutsu Kaisen so far, and I'm not surprised that Gojo is at, at number one. Gojo is the goat. And it's interesting, like, the top four resemble the top four of like the first Japanese character popularity poll, with the exception of Yuji was number one and Gojo was number two or three, I think. Hmm. The top four it seems to be pretty similar between 
this first English Jujutsu character, probably one of the first Japan pull from a few years ago now. But I think there's some interesting results here. Obviously, Toji, Megumi's dad, ranking number 10, he was certainly a Chad during the Shibuya incident. So, like, yeah, I could see him being pretty popular. He's pretty cool. Okotsu is interesting. I guess a lot of people really do read uh, Volume Zero and were pretty into Okotsu there because he only just showed up in the main series himself Mm -hmm. a few chapters ago. But... You know, he's a very interesting character. And then, I'm glad Nobara's top five, and I am sad she's the only of Jujutsu Kaisen's female cast to rank in the top ten, because Maki just missed out at number 11. Mm-hmm. But, oh well. I think one of the weird, interesting inclusions in this poll is Naoya Zenin, who is a character only introduced three chapters ago. You know, still during the period of when this poll came out, but he was only just introduced when this poll was put up, and he is probably one of the most despicable, unlikable characters in the entire series. He is a full-out misogynist, and his introduction is him, like, talking about how Maki is shitty for not being feminine enough, while Mai is better because she's more, like, submissive, and then he's also, like, talking about... He's also talking about he doesn't care that they're on Death Star, and also, like, he's gleefully, eagerly, and hoping that his own dad dies so he can take over the family. Like, he is, I think he's, his introduction self, Sultan is, like, the most despicable character in this series, the most unlikable, even more so than Mahito. So, I don't know why people voted for him, but I guess he makes that much impression as a villain, but I am disappointed. He ranks higher than Yuki Sakumo, who is cool, but, mm-hmm. oh well. And, yeah, I, I think, Otherwise, you know, these are some pretty... I think these choices make sense why people gravitate to these characters. And I think Chozo in particular, like especially recently, people really like them a lot. And I think, yeah, Ghetto has really sold himself as like a great villain, so I'm glad that he's high up there. I'm disappointed that Miwa isn't in the top 25, because I thought a lot of people really liked her, but she missed out, it seems. But yeah, in general, I think these were... Oh, Mechamaru is also not here, which is a little strange until Mechamaru is popular. But yeah, I think this is a popular poll that makes sense, that these are among the most popular characters, except for the U.S. Indian, I don't know why, but yeah, good uh, popular poll. I'm interested to see how like future polls would turn out for this, if this does another one for Jesus Guys in another series. But we also got uh, one final popularity poll to talk about. The Chainsaw Man popularity poll. This has been put up on the Japanese Turn Jump website. But, you know, if you use, like, Google Translate to translate a page, you can, like, read the text. And there's some funny text choices in here. Or, like, uh, synopses or descriptions of the characters from using Google Translate. So that's pretty amusing to go through. But the choices themselves, like, the options that they give you are kind of funny. Because it's not just characters. But, like, sometimes even just objects you can vote on, like, <laughs> power is padded bra. So, that's pretty funny. And they, they choose pretty much every character, no matter how obscure you can vote on it. So, pretty great. The grill set meal that you premieres from uh, Machima's Remains you can vote for. <laughs> how, how, how much you want to bet that power's padded bra is going to, like, come up just behind power? in the popularity poll. I would not be surprised if that gets voted pretty high for the meme of it. 
just like how Kabetti's car was voted pretty high for the Behemoth app. Yeah. I definitely just, I just voted for Power. Like, uh, I think she's an easy choice. I couldn't really think of, like, who else I wanted to vote for. Yeah, I, I, well, Power's my favorite character, too, I think, so I vote for her. But, you know, I think that there are a lot of great characters in Chainsaw Man, so I could see this going a number of ways. But Power won the first fall, so I could easily see her winning the second again. She is that powerful, after all. Mm Mm-hmm. I wonder when we're going to get the results of this, because I, I can't I can't seem to find, like, when this poll is going to end. Not that I can see anyway, so. I'm hoping maybe this will lead into, like, I'm hoping this will lead into, like, maybe part two coming out soon from Shonen Jump Plus, maybe, possibly? That'd be nice. I think they're building up to that for sure. I would not be surprised if soon after we got the serialization of part two Chainsaw Man. Because mm-hmm. there hasn't really been any more like info about that, and I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm just kind of waiting for Chainsaw Man to come back, you know. But yeah, I think that's about it for our news. If we want to go ahead and get into our main discussion, yes, I, we have a lot to say about a silent voice, so let us be silent no longer. Just because we get around Talking about my generation Things ain't do look awful Talking about my generation I hope I die before I get old Talking about my generation Talking about my generation Talking about my generation Why don't you all fade away Don't try to dig what we all say Talking about my generation We've done this podcast for five years now, and we can't stay silent about our feelings on the series any longer. We need to voice our opinions on Yoshitoki Oima's a silent voice. One of the defining manga of our generation. Indeed. I think Noyoko Yamada's choice of using that song for the film was very appropriate. It was a very nice song. I like the music video. Yeah. I like, I like, I like looking at sketchy lines standing in a field. That, that's, not, that's, a, that's my favorite kind of thing. I love flowers and I love people staring at each other in a field. <laughs> it makes <laughs> me feel happy and warm. Honestly, it's very appropriate too because it does describe Shoya's, you know, boredom. Like childhood, like uh, rambunctiousness, but also kind of his philosophy of like, oh, I'm fighting boredom, and mm. like, so the lyric in particular that stood out to me, like, I hope I die before I get old. Oh, like, oh, the Who song? Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh my God, yeah, the Who song was absolutely amazing. <laughs> uh, uh, oddly enough, a silent voice has amazing sound design. Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I thought you were talking about the, like the theme song at the end, and I was like, oh, oh. I mean, that was really emotional too. But yeah, we are talking about a silent voice today, or Koino Katachi, and as the you shape, heard, or the shape of voice, or the shape of voice. <laughs> I mean, that is also a very valid translation. And as you've heard, we have some really special guests on today. First up is, of course, returning guest. I'm Vix. Yeah. I'm here to give opinions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we also have returning to the show Corey from the Taiku Podcast and Manga in Your Years. 
Uh, hello. Thank you for having me. I guess my second time talking about this with Colton, and it will be just as good, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, we'll, mm-hmm. we'll get to that in a little bit. <laughs> and we're excited to have on first-time guest Marco Oliveros, who is an editorial writer for a bunch of sites, including Anime News Network and Anime Feminist, Crunchyroll. They do their own blogging on their blog, Therefore It Is, and they are an ALT teacher in Japan. Oh, lucky. Yeah. Hello, um, I'm Marco, um, like Marco Polo or Chibi Marco-chan, but I am not either. That's a joke I use in order to introduce myself to my students. Uh, that's pretty good. I should read Chibi Marco-chan. Yeah, it's a nice theme song. Yeah. Also, I go online by my handle 0rec011, 0rec011, short for Zero Requiem, because at one point in time I was a code geos. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Weren't we all? I wasn't because I was watching Sonic X at that time instead. I've actually, I've actually. I mean, you had to go fast. I, I had to go fast, but that anime's frame rate had to go really slow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've actually never seen more than like five episodes of Code Geass, but like I know a lot about it through osmosis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty popular. <laughs> I watched Code Ment once. About... Code Ment's more of my oh, jam, yeah, actually. The... Yeah. Purple, yeah, the purple eyes one, yeah. and, I, and I know that a uh, Pizza Hut, and that's yeah, and also the main character's got a really cool cape. I'm at the soup store. Anyway, well, Marco, since this is your first time on the show, would you like to kind of introduce yourself further and your background and some of the writings that you've done? Sure. So, um, as you mentioned before, I write for sites, or have written for sites like Anime News Network and Crunchyroll. I maintain my own blog, therefore it is, um, .wordpress.com, and I also am somewhat active on Twitter with my handle 0rec011. The first zero, friends, is uh, written out. Mm-hmm. As in Z-E-R-O. Mm-hmm. Right, and then afterwards R-E-Q, and then 011. <laughs> so, my background academically is in political science as well as Asian studies. And yet somehow I ended up working as a teacher in Japan, um, an English teacher. And um, I teach as an English teacher kids from the primary elementary school level up to the middle and junior high school level. Mm-hmm. So I have um, some experience with kids. Mm. Absolutely. And one of the reasons I reached out to you is because I read and really enjoyed your blog post on Assigned Voice and the kind of lack of a constructive role of adults in the series, particularly the teachers, and how they kind of fail to guide the children Assigned Voice on the right path. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted you on to share more of your perspective on the series. And I thought it would be great also to have Vix on, because Vix, you also are a teacher, you've worked with children and mm-hmm. children with disabilities too, and you've had experience in Japan as well. So yeah. I thought that'd be really great to have you guys vote on to kind of share those perspectives. Yeah, I have some opinions as somebody who worked in who uh, who worked all of last year in special ed. Just a, some opinions, just a small amount. <laughs> I um I wasn't working with special uh, with um. With the um, with the with special ed in Japan, however, so I'm not entirely sure about the um, about, about the systems in place there. But America, I don't know how that works. 
Mm-hmm. Hint, it's bad. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. not good. Yeah. Even in a place like a Minnesota yeah. where we actually get a lot of state funding for our schools, it's bad. Vote November. <laughs> yeah. Betsy DeVos is the, is the daughter of the of the founder of Amway. Her brother runs Blackwater. Oh. This is not a good person. Get him out. Okay, politics done. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. well, I mean, we're definitely going to dig into how the educational system, uh, the school system, definitely failed Shoko in many ways, for sure. Yeah, a silent voice is political. It's definitely mm-hmm. political. Um, especially the manga. They specifically mention a lot of organizations in Japan that are meant to work with deaf children. Mm-hmm. But we'll get into that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, first, I think we should just go into art in general. Our experiences with the series, like how we were introduced to it, our first experiences and perceptions of it reading it, and just kind of our initial impressions having revisited it, and if we've had any opinions change from the past to now uh, in our different readings of it. And, well, I guess, Colton, I mean, this is your third podcast <laughs> on A Silent Voice. You recorded previously two in the same day, both the Manga Corner with Corey and the anime manga with Dominic and Jammers. So, I mean, you're visiting the series again five years since those podcasts. So, why don't we start with you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as, as Lum brought up, I I definitely did uh, record. Uh, I don't think it was in the same day. It was definitely in the same weekend. Well, I listened. I listened to the episode and you mentioned, yeah, you were recording them the same day. Which one did you listen to? Because I listened to both. And uh, in the Dominic. In both, actually, you mentioned that you recorded them on the same day. You recorded oh, the anime manga one first, okay. and then the, the manga horror that evening. Well, I was asking because um, I actually didn't, uh, like, are those are both of those still up available online? Oh, yeah, you can find them. You can find them, man. Okay. Oh, boy. I didn't think you could still find them. I've had trouble trying to find the anime manga podcast from, from Jammer, because I wanted to listen to a few uh, past episodes, but I, I couldn't find it online, so... Uh, maybe I'm just not looking in the right places, but uh, I mean, I literally just typed any manga podcast and then a silent voice, and I I found a list of the episodes. So hmm. maybe it's just because I was looking on um on Apple Podcasts because I definitely can't find mm. I definitely can't find the anime manga podcast on Apple Podcasts anymore. Yeah, no, I don't think they're on there. I where did I find them? Well, we can talk about that later. I suppose. Yeah, we'll, we'll figure but... that later, but. Yeah, I mean, how were you first introduced to the series? How did you first get wind of it? When did you first read it? I mean, my story is not super interesting. I definitely knew about A Silent Voice, you know, just from kind of seeing people talk about it. I remember when it was first being published and, you know, being scanned and whatnot, that uh, I had definitely seen people talk about it and how amazing it was and everything. And uh, I kept hearing a lot of talk around it, you know, as it was running in uh was it Kodansha Shonen magazine? I think that's where yes, it ran. Yes, Weekly Shonen yeah. magazine. It ran from uh, 2013 through November 2014. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll go into my experiences with the timeline on that uh on my turn, but to continue like when was it that you finally started reading it? Was it after the series was over? I think I read it after it was over because I cuz I I remember the like I specifically read a silent voice for for the manga corner, uh, when I was mm. still recording that, this is pre-manga Maverick stuff that we're talking about mm. now. 
So that would have been December 2015. Yeah, it was definitely around the end of 2015 I was reading it on Crunchyroll, when Crunchyroll actually still had the series up. I don't think you could read it on there anymore, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, I specifically read it for that podcast, and uh, I'm glad you got to listen to those episodes again, because I definitely wouldn't have remembered doing the, doing both those podcasts in, in the same day. I knew I did them pretty like in, in close proximity to each other, and... um you know, I like obviously when I first read it, I loved it and I thought it was amazing and it instantly became one of my favorite series, definitely within like the top 10 range there. And I mean, yeah, I like again, I, I don't really have much to talk about from my first impressions because I, I think because for this podcast specifically, this is only my second time rereading it. But I think I think, you know, five years later, rereading this series for you know, for manga Mavericks, I I feel like uh, I feel like I've like 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 my feelings haven't changed on it too much, and I still think it's an amazing series. But I do think I I do think I understand the characters a little better. Like I, mm-hmm. you know, I was I kind of said it off mic, you know, while we were setting up. How I still think, and I'm sorry for being crass, but I still think Naoka's kind of a raging bitch for most of the series. But maybe. Mm, I will say that, you know, rereading the series again, while I still think her personality is really terrible, and I would hate to know her in real life, I, I do think there are times where, like, I think the reasons why she may be upset are usually actually pretty, like, warranted sometimes, not all the time. So it, it's things like that where I feel like I understand the characters a lot better and, like, certain point of views and where they're coming from and their actions. And, yeah, I mean, that's... You know, uh, obviously, for for the manga corner specifically, uh, part of the reason I wanted Corey to come on uh, this episode was because uh, Corey and I recorded about uh, a silent voice on that episode, and uh, I'm sure it was a really good episode. But I, I remember we definitely had our share of like technical issues. Corey, I, I think your audio gave out or something, and you had to give me you had to no, you know what? Actually, I, I think I was recording your side, and you had to give me a backup. And uh, I, I think that episode came out as well as it could. I, I remember a lot of technical issues I had with that episode. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad we could have you back on to basically redo that conversation. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I, I, think, I think maybe that could lead into uh, maybe Corey's first impressions. Yeah, yeah. Corey, like, what was your first experiences reading the series? Sure. Um, well, I, I talk about this on the Mugging Yuri's podcast sometimes about how um, there are, are a few special needs people in my life. My cousin is one, and my mom works with uh, mm-hmm. autistic children in elementary school for her job. So just seeing a lot of these uh, depictions of bullying and uh, especially the complicity on the part of both these students who uh, might not know better at this point. So. They they get like sort of a pass in that in that first volume, but the, the teachers especially who are just letting all of this happen, and then eventually one of the teachers actually calling out Sh- Shoya for being a dick toward Shoko. Um, um, so like they they don't care. The teachers don't care or seem to care. Like the depiction of that was what really struck me in the first reading of it, and in every subsequent reading of it. It's just the way that it can anger you and uh, all of those feelings of how, like, these people are not helpless, but more more helpless than able-bodied people because 
they have a disability and like it is incumbent on people to help those people the way that it's uh i mean what really struck me about it is like the the redemption arc for for show 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 yeah yeah i okay. know that's the worst i always get those confused because they're very similar <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah i don't know how i came across it to begin with i, I did a couple of reviews for the fangin posts but I think it was just that it being about a deaf character is what really interested me, and that's how I how I dug into it. And Marco, what was your first experiences with a song books? So actually, before the movie and before the actual Sirium manga, um, I read the original one shot for A Silent oh. Voice. It was a fan oh. translation, and at the time when I read it and rereading it um, later on. I thought it was very good. You know, in a lot of romance stories, there's this trope about how there is a child bully, a bully that bullies um, someone else of the opposite sex. And then later on, it turns out that they hook up together. And it's explained that this bullying that um, happened earlier on was like a symptom of like a crush, basically. And the one shot and the later serial manga of the silent voice, while not being a subversion or like a total subversion of that trope, it was like a more hardcore like depiction and dealing with bullying in that case. The bullying wasn't something that was just annoying and irritating and something that could be looked on nostalgically once like the couple was set together, were together. It was something that had like major ramifications, serious consequences to how they grew up as people. Mm -hmm. um, involved a lot of trauma. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I later on discovered that there was a serial manga that was being made for it and a movie that was made for it. And I read and watched both after they had both finished. The one shot was a pretty good like introduction or foundation to a bunch of ideas that would be later explored by the complete story in the serial manga. And I thought that its exploration of its themes overall was quite good. Mm -hmm. um, and while I regret that the movie had to cut out a bunch of elements, a bunch of plot, a lot of characterization from the source material, because the movie is short. Mm -hmm. It's just constrained by runtime. I still think that overall, the one shot, the manga series, and the movie were pretty good. Absolutely. Yeah. It's really awesome that you were introduced through the one shot in particular. Sally, I didn't get a chance to read through that. I don't know if I've ever read through that since it's not in the English volumes, but. Yeah, yeah, I heard I mean, some, I saw some people complaining about that online. I managed to track it down. It's pretty good. The art's a little bit rough, but it's really, really nice. There's although you're not really missing that much if you've read the serial. It is no, basically the flashback we see in the series. Oh yeah, mm. definitely. There does I don't think that there's anything different. Mm -hmm. I there are just a few things. They introduce more of like the adults' perspectives. Though there are just a few of them that are layered in and out. So we have a better, for example, introduction to Shoya's mother. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, and um, and the teachers actually uh, start talking to the students, and there's a lot more going on in Shoya uh, in Ashoya's head mm. in the manga yeah. proper. The the manga makes the teachers a lot more complicit and spells out what they're doing a lot better, I think. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, actually, that scene where the teacher was yelling in this one shot, that was very aggressive, even more so than the what was in the series. Oh, no, no. In the series, oh, it's no, literally actually, the same thing, yeah, just right. with better... Yeah, it's in the movie where they, uh, where, where they but, tone... Yeah, the movie is more subtle about it. Like, the teacher just kind of <laughs> slowly rises to a yell and, yeah, bashes the... Uh, chalkboard behind him no he needs to go full jerk <laughs> that, the move that that's that's the biggest failing of the movie he needs to scream yeah, like aggressive a, angry he yeah. needs to go full mask off <laughs> <laughs> i guess the one difference is that he has a whistle in the manga where he didn't do the one shot yeah he doesn't have that yeah look at him look at that boy yeah actually another interesting thing of about the one shot, though, uh, in those opening color pages, the text, you know, promoted it as, hey, uh, manga by the 23-year-old genius. And it is worth noting that Oima was extremely young when she did this series in magazines. When the series to be the proper, was, she was just 24. I mean, it's actually not even her debut work. Her debut work was an adaptation of uh, Mardok Scramble, which she did hmm. when she was 20. Oh, wow. So... Oh. Yeah, I mean, she's incredibly talented artist. Like, amazingly and like the fact that i mean she got work on a big franchise adaptation like as her debut and then has continued to make not just a hit in a silent voice but a hit into your eternity is really incredible astonishing like absolutely amazing artist oh yeah just side note if anyone hasn't read to your eternity please go read that yes uh, we did an episode on it when it was just 20 ish chapters in and that's definitely one we should revisit at some point too yeah i yeah. know that there's even more story but yeah it's pretty oh, good yeah one yeah. of my friends said it was even more depressing <laughs> and i'm I mean... i'm i'm here for the awful people <laughs> being awful <laughs> you know but all being redeemable redeemable awful. right right yeah. but actually vix uh, what was your first introduction to the series i just I never really like looked into it that much. It was um so it was one of the I all I remember is that it was one of the one of the big movies that was coming out in 2017 or so. I don't remember when this what like is at the about the same time as your name? Uh yeah, 2016 was when Bulk came out. Yeah, 2017 um, is when Bulk screened over here. Mm -hmm. yes. And every, and a lot of people were talking about it and I said, "Oh, I'll get to it eventually." So when I was asked to do the podcast, I was like, oh, I guess I, I guess this is the time to do that. Oh, so this was your first time? <laughs> yeah, this was my first time coming oh, through nice. it. And it was absolutely, it was a lot more heart-wrenching than I was expecting. <laughs> I was like, oh, this is going to be, this is, <laughs> this is going to be a, a good time, you know, a, ha a happy, nice time. And when I was reading through it, I was like, this is making me extremely sad. And <laughs> it's, it's calling me out, but I just want to keep reading. So I'm going to do that. <laughs> The pain hurts. hurts. Oh my god! And it's it so good. Oh. Uh. There's catharsis <laughs> in reading a story that delves into such very uncomfortable, very real uh, feelings of self-hate that the characters explore, in particular, but also like some very real situations too. But yeah, I mean that's really awesome. I'm glad you enjoyed it, and uh, I have a personal history with the series as well. I actually. 
managed to read it while it was still being uh, silent published on Crunchyroll manga. I caught wind of it very early on, uh, as it very grew a reputation very early on for being like, you know, it's content matter of like exploring uh, the situation of a bully trying to redeem himself and focusing on a character with disabilities, you know, trying to find acceptance uh, and friends and the world and their relationship. So it really drew my interest in the premise and I read and caught up to it and the chapter I caught up to the latest chapter out at the time when I caught up to it was when Shoya fell off the balcony landed in the water and that was the chapter I caught up to that was oh man it and so the remaining 20 weeks of the series I was following it week to week uh, the entire final arc and it was a roller coaster of emotions. And at the time, in 2014, I, on the Animation Revelation forums, would review all the chapters of manga that I read every week, all the chapters of manga I was keeping up with. And every week, I basically gave a silent voice a perfect 10 out of 10 for every chapter. Uh, it was always like number one, or if not number one, the only things that ever beat it out as number one in my revisiting it was a silver spoon and princess jellyfish other favorites of mine but yeah silent voice at the end of the year it was definitely my favorite manga i'd read that year and i'd written so much about it that when i did like my write-ups of my favorite manga of 2014 I just reposted everything i said <laughs> about every chapter of the series <laughs> that i reviewed and I wrote so much <laughs> that it took three forum posts to fit it all in. Oh my gosh. Uh, and that's just how much I was absolutely enamored and in love with the series. It really hit me personally for the subject matters, exploring, and we'll explore that uh, more as in our conversation. But it also has stuck with me over the years for even more experiences that I've constantly inflected upon and also. I've consistently revisited uh, the manga and the movies. I've seen pretty much every screening of the movie in uh, theaters whenever they've shown it. Like, all three, four times they've shown it. I've been to every single one. And even before the screening, I, Martin and I, we, Lord and I, we got a, iTunes, a British iTunes account to download the movie back when it was still in licensing limbo. It hadn't been licensed for North America yet, but it had for the UK. So we got a, managed to get a UK account to download the movie. Uh, didn't watch it. So uh, I've seen that movie so many times too. Like this is absolutely one of my favorite stories, uh, one of my favorite manga and anime. So yeah, uh, absolutely love this story. And I think now we should really dig into the core of what this story is about, what the story is. I think that this is a story definitely about childhood bullying and its consequences, and specifically kind of the traumas encumbered in childhood and how characters grapple with them, deal with them growing up, and try to confront them as they move forward into adulthood. Um, I guess my question for everyone is, like, how you felt it explored that. And for me, I mean, I feel like I could relate a lot of my own lived experiences to some of the struggles and situations in the series. Personally, I was also someone who was bullied as a child. I had very similar experiences uh, to the bullying that both Sho that Shoko and Joy received in separate respects, but being bullied for who I was as like I was, you know, a little bit overweight, a little bit 
off kilter. Uh, so I was bullied for that. But also, I had friends who I trusted who one day turned on me and started bullying me. And that really messed up my ability to form relationships with people that, to be honest, I still deal with sometimes these days. So I could really relate. Yeah, sucks. yeah no, but that's why I really, really, uh, find the series so poignant and how it depicts like the long-term long-lasting traumatic effects of that that you know even as you grow up you still think to that and you still think back about those experiences and you i mean show throughout the series even as he's starting to form friends he's wondering like if he can if he has this imposter syndrome like can he really trust these people he's worried that they will find out like what he's done in his past or the kind of person he really is and they'll turn on him and he'll lose everything again and that boils, like, to a point where he, even though he's with the group, he still feels alone until the very end of the series where he learns to put trust in other people again. And yeah, I just found that arc so real, so valuable. Mm. Yeah, I think one of the most poignant things about this manga is Shoya's entire arc. I mean, he's the main character, so hopefully, like, <laughs> uh, his arc is very poignant. But the, what, what, I re- what really struck me about this is that we called it, or I called it a redemption arc, and Lem Yu said it was uh, part of his redemption story as well. But, like, at least my reading of it, he's not really looking mm-hmm. for redemption. He's not really Especially looking for forgiveness. I mean, at the beginning, I don't know if there's. Uh, like, he yeah. is so deep in his self-hate that his idea is that I am going to do right by other people and apologize for causing problems for them by saving up all this money for my mother to pay for all the money that she has spent on me. But then also I'm going to apologize to Shoko and make peace with that and then I'll commit suicide. And like that just fatalism Mm -hmm. of uh, Shoya there. That just, okay, I'm going to put an end to anything because there is no hope for me. Uh, I am not, you know, I don't, I'm not worthwhile. Like, that's really brutal. Mm-hmm. I mean, but of course, like, Shoko gives him a chance to continue on because in his meeting with Shoko, there's a chance to see each other again. And so there's a relationship that starts to form and there's a reason for Shoya to want to keep living, which I thought was really really interestingly explored but like there's always that back of the mind this guilt of his that is weighing on him yeah I'm, it's kind of like you know sure he decided not to go through with killing himself but you know now he basically has to learn how to deal how basically learn how to live with what he's done and how to sort of move mm-hmm. past it and that's 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 kind of the biggest challenge yeah and that's why he tries to make up for what he did to Shoko in the past by trying to repair what he destroyed, in his own words, what he destroyed. And that's, you know, by reforging the friendships that Shoko lost, particularly starting with uh, Sahara, but then also trying to do his best to help Shoko in whatever way possible and uh, just be a, a friend to her. And he's still unsure that he can be a friend to her, like if he has a right to be her friend. But that is what he's... He's trying to do, he's trying to reach out to her and, uh, be the friend that she want, that she tried, wanted him to be when, you know, they were kids. Like she tried to reach out to him when they were kids. And then now, you know, as teens, like he's trying to live up to that mm-hmm. and try to do the right thing now. I've got a slightly more cynical view of Shoya, mm-hmm. although, cause he kind of resonated with, with me as a, as a character. And I've been reading a, 
some pre- some pretty cynical fiction lately. Um, <laughs> uh, we're 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 gonna we're gonna talk about this dude named Wildbo a bit later, I'm sure. Um, so in one of the books that I was reading called Worm, which is the best book ever, one of the main characters thinks that she can find that she can find redemption just as long as as she does right by this one person which in her case is this is this girl that she's trying to save from a mobster which i th- i think that's what i think that's kind of clo- but you know she's doing horrible things to get to that point and she's ignoring her and she's ignoring everything about herself and what that girl would actually want which i think is very very close to what shoya is attempting to do he's selfishly pers- uh, he's selfishly pursuing redemption through martyrdom mm-hmm. without with i mean not that he not that he mm-hmm. knows that he's a teenager he He's doing some. He's doing so. It, one of the nice, one of the great things I, uh, about a silent voice is that there's no real bad or good people. Mm-hmm. Everybody's kind of a dumb dumb because they're <laughs> seniors in high school. Of course, they're going to be dumb. I, th- I think that Shoya has a large martyr complex. He does. Um, he he mm. constantly gives Shoko the runaround. He doesn't actually talk to her directly and asks what she wants. And Ueno very much has a point when she tries to do the same thing for uh, for Shoya that he's doing for Shoko, and he's reacting violently because his past traumas are coming to confront him. Yeah. And um and Shoko is and, and Shoko is somebody who's very um who's very very passive and she but um so she so she's not going to tell him no, and she feels horrible about every about the lengths that he's going for her and he just doesn't want to re- but he doesn't want to reach out um, um he doesn't want to reach out of himself to do anything like that i think this even goes on beyond after you know she tries to commit suicide where when she's trying to move to tokyo he's uh, um I, I, the, the, I think the series really starts to spell it out what she means to him as in he views her as more of an object that she that he can be redeemed through but mm-hmm. he doesn't want to redeem himself at the same time he wants well, to be kind of- i think that's a little more cynical. I think at that point, Shoya is just not honest about the fact that he still wants Shoko in his life, that he cares about her like as a friend. And oh, so he, yeah. he's, he's worried. He doesn't want to be away from her, but he's not really thinking about what's best for her and what's making would make her happy. Mm-hmm. So he makes up all these excuses of, oh, Tokyo is this dangerous place full of murderers, and oh, you, Siru, would cry, uh, so you should mm-hmm. stay here. But of course, that's not what Shoko wants right Shoko wants to pursue her own career but he's kind of being very clingy there because he won't admit like how he really feels about Shoko but also he's unwilling to let go but I definitely think you're on the mark with like Shoya's martyrdom because yeah I mean he is thinking that it's okay for me to suffer you know for me to be to lose all these connections and friendships like he's uncomfortable that they he even is starting to form a friend group because he is just trying to rebuild all this for Shoko. He said, okay, I am going to give Shoko back everything I took from her. He's not really asking, uh, after a certain point, what Shoko really wants. I mean, when he asks her about, hey, is there anyone you want to connect with? And she mentions, oh, she'd like to talk with Sahara again. That is something that, hey, he actually asked her mm-hmm. and actually, you know, allowed her to reconnect with someone that she wanted to reconnect with. But... You know, as the series goes on, he's like, hey, uh, especially after, you know, the big falling out. And he's like, oh, hey, this summer, let's go do a bunch of these fun things. Let's yeah, go to that part movies. really hurt. Uh, and I, mm-hmm. 
the series didn't need to spell it out at that point, but it was it really hit that he had never actually apologized mm-hmm. for anything that he did at that point, which I think really kind of he's not a bad person. Obviously, this is he's a very very awkward person that doesn't act, um that's he's a very very awkward person. He's a very very awkward teenager that's trying to that's trying to show love in the best way that he can and obsessed with making everything seem natural, but. He's not actually taking the time to listen to her voice, mm-hmm. yeah. and it's depressing. <laughs> he's going like he's got a more of a relationship <laughs> with Yuzuru than he does with um uh, than he does with uh with uh Sh- um Sh- uh, Sh- Shoko. Shoko. I mean, he's like, meeting uh, Yuzuru Shoko. on her level more often than with Shoko. Yeah, like, he's communicating with her and actually noticing. Hey, she is not okay after the death of her grandmother, and she's you know struggling with a bunch of feelings and he notices that mrs ishimiya is also you know really in mourning here and she he is able to kind of correct yuzuru's assumptions about her mother and that her mother is acting cold in the debt of her grandmother when that's not actually the case at all yeah so in that uh instance like he displays uh emotional awareness of other people and like what they're feeling and is able to maturely like communicate with them but yeah with shoko He's kind of blindsided by this guilt he has for her that he is not really meeting her at her level. He's not really noticing what's really going on with her, even though there's so many warning signs, uh, even when they're going on their trips, like to the amusement park. Like, Shoko is so absent-minded. She's lost in her thoughts. Mm -hmm. Uh, She's definitely contemplating the seeds of her plan to commit suicide, or is at least mired in her self-hate and depression at that point. But he's, he's just trying to you know, say, hey, oh, everything's okay. Isn't everything okay? There's but like, nothing bad. I mean, she's not really paying attention to how <laughs> she is feeling and like kind of the the weak smile she's really giving to anything when inside she's she's just thinking like such horrible things about herself. Mm-hmm. And that, I mean, that realization mm-hmm. really only comes when, you know, he sees Shoko coming suicide and he uh, is grabbing onto her and he's thinking, what could I have done to prevent this like what should i have done and things about all these different instances of where things could have gone differently that could have prevented this from happening mm-hmm. and it's like yeah it's just this narrow focus that he has that prevented him from seeing like what's really going on around him and that is like applied to one of the greatest visual metaphors in this manga is like the fact that he showy us you know because he's not willing to look people in the eye see people on their level there are X's on all the phases around him in his class, mm-hmm. all the people around him in his class. He's not really engaging with them as people. Like he's seeing, he's just thinking of them as, oh, they are not going to give me the time of day. They're not going to treat me like a person. So I'm going to treat them as non-entities too. And he projects his thoughts of like what he thinks they are saying about him onto them. Mm-hmm. Like we see several times in the manga, like he imagines thought bubbles of what they are saying, what they are thinking of him. Which is just so accurate of people who have that kind of self-hate and loading that they think, oh, like everyone is criticizing me and looking at me like that. Which is the problem, of course, that everybody in this manga has because they're all dumb teenagers. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're all very, very much wrapped up in their own universes and don't want to move beyond what the, um, and, and don't, and don't want their realities challenged, but. What's nice is that they're uh, they are they're at least trying to most of them anyways are at least trying to change that. Yeah, I mean absolutely. Whether they give that whether it's just lip service or uh, or actively trying to like 
Like, Shoya actually is attempting to try to move into that, but he's also too afraid to. Hmm. I mean, it takes a long time, for sure. Yes. Uh, for them to all, to have a moment of self-actualization about, okay, you know, the way I've been thinking about myself and about the world around me is too defeatist, and I need to, you know, just work harder to change. Like, never stop changing. No. It's, it's um kind of the same for... Everybody, uh, I, Nagatsuka's, um, he thinks the world, he thinks the world's a film where he's the star. Mm. Satoshi thinks that the world's a revenge fantasy where he's, oh, yeah. where he's going to make, where, um, where he's, he's going, going to, he's going to die. a teacher <laughs> to basically watch over the kid of the two people who bullied him <laughs> and judge whether that kid has grown up to a good person and whether they are good parents by the, how the kid is growing into. It's definitely very, uh, perverse, and then his mindset is like, "Oh, yeah. but I am a good person because I was bullied, and so I can speak from that moral authority of, hey, I was bullied. I know what bullying looks like. Like I can be, I am in the right in what I do. I'm not weird." And so he becomes friends with Shoya specifically, so he can say, "Hey, I'm a normal person. Here's someone less normal than me that I can feel better by being wet in comparison." Like, this guy is much weirder than I am, so that makes me more of a normal person in comparison. Yeah. And then when he confronts people who are bullies in the series, we have three instances of this, of, like, he confronts, like, Absolute kids Chad. Armed. This is how you deal with bullies. You beat the crap out of children, <laughs> you throw water at, you throw water at teachers, and then you beat the crap out of, uh, out of, out of everybody else. Okay, see, right. yeah. look, I, all I'll say is that that moment with the teacher... I'm not saying it was right, but it was kind of cathartic. No, that I mean, wasn't. Yeah. You, no, that wasn't. Yeah, that, it was that definitely cathartic. Really was so. Cool. Oh, are you talking about Nishimiya? Ah, <laughs> I see. <laughs> Just, I, yeah, I did. I did appreciate that, but definitely, like, he is tr- trying to kind of present himself as. Hey, I have kind of the moral high ground in these situations. It's uh, like he's yeah. not standing up for bullying because of he genuinely is like angry at the injustice necessarily, but so much is like it makes him feel better mm-hmm. to say, "Hey, I'm better than these people," and by punishing these bullies, I make myself feel better and feel like more of a person in the right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Honestly, I feel like yeah. out of everybody in the movie version, his character is shafted the worst. I mean, it oh, is he doesn't even get to beat changed. the shit out of Shoya. I mean, it's fundamentally changed because they yeah. remove that entire aspect of his character. So in the movie, they it got the serves... creepy music though. Yeah, whenever, it... whenever he's around, creepy music. <laughs> Unintentionally so, but in the movie, like, yeah, the the character, his purpose in the narrative in the movie is completely different because it is like what you kind of zoomed when you first read the manga and get first get to know. Uh, Satoshi is like, oh, you assume, hey, this is kind of like this normal guy who's just part of this group. But then in the manga, of course, you reveal, no, he has his own issues that he's dealing with, his own like insecurities that he's working through and he's kind of projecting on other people and, and his actions. Whereas in the movie, like he is just this guy who's put together and he's just meant to serve as like just this contrast of, hey, here is a, well, here's a person who just wants to be friends with Shoya. And here's someone that he Choya could just be friends with if he got to know him and he's willing to meet him on his level. Mm-hmm. But Choya rejects him and so he walks away. But then of course he's willing to come back and 
make friends with Shoya again after Shoya, you know, has this moment of realization and it confronts everyone again after he wakes out of his coma and goes back to school and stuff. So, like, yeah, his purpose in the narrative is much different between movie and manga. In manga, he has more of a character arc, uh, which is true in general of most mm-hmm. of the secondary cats. They have more of a character arc in the manga because it actually goes into their uh, mindsets, why they are the way they are, why they behave the way they behave, think the way they think. And so mm-hmm. it develops and pays off on all of them, whereas in the movie, it just focus on, focuses on, you know, Shoya, Shoko, uh, Naoka, and yeah, those are like the main ones that get really a satisfying payoff to their arcs. Yeah, and it's especially telling that in the um, so in the manga, after he beats the shit out of Shoya, he says, "Why would I care? I'm an outsider." He he calls himself an outsider, whereas in the whereas in the movie, um, Shoya is the one that calls him an outsider and rejects him. Yeah, whereas yeah. In, whereas in the manga, he rejects himself. Also, um, speaking the way that I was bullied as a kid was by people like him being used by them and but uh, just by the um by people that were the friends that were pretending to be friends that they were pretending to be nice to me to get something out of me or for something that they wanted to do which so <laughs> the moment that he entered the manga i was like mm, it's kind of sus I mean, just a yeah. just a little and the end uh, uh what actually made me think okay there's okay never mind i don't i, I think he's okay now was him starting to show his true colors so it's like, oh, okay, he's not as horrible as I thought. He's pretty horrible. <laughs> so, but in different ways, bless him. <laughs> Absolute mad lad. He's, I've definitely met a lot of people like him, but what's nice is that he's not, he, he, he actually has, he actually, he actually has reasons for what he does. Whereas a lot of people mm-hmm. that I've, like, a lot of people that, I guess, uh, uh, Mickey fi- uh, kind of falls into the category of the latter, of just people that make friends with people to make themselves feel better about themselves or to use them for their own ends, but don't actually realize it. Yeah, I mean, if we want to go into Mickey's character, I think she's very interesting. I don't think she's because I don't think she's a malicious character. I don't think that she is a character who has an agenda in what she does. Mm. Uh, she kind of is probably the most sincere character in the manga. Uh, because she generally believes everything she says and everything she does. She's and cute. So she's well, capable of being cruel and kind to the same people and mean that both sincerely at the same time. And I, I think it's, it's definitely, Mickey's like one of the characters that my understanding of, I feel, has definitely changed a lot since my initial reading to now. And I definitely like feel I understand her better. I think she's the only person who doesn't have truly, uh, become self-conscious of themselves and, why they act the way they do but there is a moment when she is like lecturing shoko about like trying to shoko's trying to do the movie and she's like oh that's this is not the time for that and she is saying that everyone is suffering to the same things but as she's saying the speech she's thinking to what shoko said about her thinking like her classmates said about her and it's kind of realizing in that moment that you know she is afraid to kind of accept that she might have flaws that the that she is in the wrong sometimes. And she dovetails... But she's getting closer. Yeah, She dovetails that speech into it being more about herself and saying, you know, it's you have to you have to love yourself, even because if you don't, like, it's going to make you feel like, you know, you want to die. Like, she's talking to herself. Like, even if you think of yourself as in a way that other people yeah. don't see you, like, you gotta 
embrace yourself. You gotta have some level of that self love just to keep going in the world sometimes. The, so she does have that. They, they kept they kept part of that. One of one of those speeches that she made in the movie, which really stood out to me, because it's like if if um, the eagle eyed viewer who hasn't even read the manga could probably tell that she was talking about herself. Yeah, and she I mean, was it's after more clear in the manga in the movie after, it after played as more of a sincere thing that she's saying the Shoko. I don't think you get that quite realization that she's she also has had this moment of self-reflection, however instantaneous, uh, however brief it was, that you know she also is harboring some insecurities about herself that she is kind of uh, ignoring through this act she puts on that she herself does not see as an act; she just sees as herself genuinely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think the silent voice is a pretty melodramatic but um, sharp example of how people's experiences during their former years can have a major impact on who they end up becoming. Mm-hmm. So obviously the way that people are bullied when they are young, in the case of Shoya and Shoko's case, can have a major impact on who they think themselves of or as, um, as they grow up. Um, people who are subjected to nothing but like abuse and without any supportive network, um, they grow up feeling terribly self-loathing, mm-hmm. thinking, wondering whether or not, like, if everything that they said or others said about them and like the treatment that others subject themselves to, wondering whether or not there is some truth to that. Uh, on the flip side, it also reinforces other values. Going back to the case of Miki, for example, the lack of other people, and especially adults, like telling her where she might be in the wrong, uh, because she, in, throughout the entire series, seeds in, the, in her elementary school days and flowers and the time she goes to high school, because she was never told how, or she was never schooled on how, like, she can make these connections about how her behavior actually affects people wrongly. Because she always thinks of herself, or she almost always thinks of herself as, like, being completely innocent. Because she's never told by other people, especially like the homeroom teacher, how these things that she helped contribute may be her fault, she develops this idea that it's never her fault. Mm-hmm. You can also extrapolate that to even Naoka as well, where she also lacks any sense of responsibility for her own actions. So Miki feels like she's blameless for all of the things that are happening. Naoka believes that not only is she blameless, but it's other people's fault that like things ended up mm-hmm. falling apart. Mm-hmm. She oh, says the absolutely. quiet part loud. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, she is, Naoka is in particular reinforced by the homeroom teacher in her childhood because he's the one who plants the seed of idea in her head of like, hey, I'm you're, you sure seem burdened by helping out Shoko. I can see it on your face. And she's like, oh, really? But that does get her thinking, hmm, why is it always me? So, yeah, the teacher especially had a very negative reinforcement of like how Noka perceived Shoko, her relationship to Shoko. And then it, that further was exasperated when the rift between the class and Shoya happened and she just channeled all of the blame for that, even though she was complicit in the bullying of Shoya. 
onto Shoko. And so she in- independently also continued to bully Shoko out of spite for that. And yeah, she is totally convicted that like she was right in her course of action. So like she says to Shoko on the Ferris wheel that, you know, you were probably, I was right for what I was doing. You were probably right for what I was doing. Let's both agree that we are not going to apologize to each other for what we did and just go from there. And that's like how she sees yeah. things. It's like, I, we don't have to apologize yeah, for who we are. We don't have to change who we are. Let's just coexist. Right. Like, as much as, you know, a terrible person Naoka is and demonstrates throughout the entire series, you got to feel kind of sad because how she came to be that way is kind of understandable because no one told her and she was in fact encouraged to think that nothing is ever her fault and that it was other people's fault, especially Shoko's. You just have to feel sad for these kids who not only like end up like hating themselves for what they've done um, in the case of um, Shoya and Shoko, but also feel they have no responsibility in terms of how things end up as horribly as they did. And that's the fault of the adults in the room, um, and especially the homeroom mm-hmm. teacher. I really want to go into this, especially, you know, you know, with both you, Marco, and Fix here. Because mm-hmm. in your experiences as teachers working with kids, you know, especially young kids observing, like, the classroom culture, uh, how bullying might even happen in the classroom, and also the role of teachers in being in playing a part in resolving these situations or getting involved with these situations of bullying. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, just go into your thoughts on how the teacher was presenting the series, how he handled the situation, the ramifications of his influence on the students, as it, as we saw in the series. Mm-hmm. So, I've met a lot of people that are like the teach, like the teacher in um, uh, in in a silent voice. In the manga, I believe that he represents the status quo. The, um, as as he says, it's just one of those things you have to deal with. That's the thing that he constantly repeats. It's just one of those things you have to deal with. But at the same time, he's he doesn't want to go outside. Of, he doesn't want to go outside of what his duties are. I mean, to be completely fair to him, I don't think that he's going to have the skill. He, he probably wasn't trained. He probably doesn't have the skills, the time, or is and probably isn't getting the pay to deal with somebody like Shoko. Hmm. Even the person that was sent to help him from uh, the silent uh, from um, uh, from uh, the hearing uh, the hearing classroom, she doesn't even know sign language yeah. herself, and that's that's from a Japanese government program. And um, mm. every single solution that's posited to him is something that would have to change up his lesson plan, change up his class, and he's just sitting there quietly seething in anger until uh, until he starts fighting back a little bit. Mm. It's interesting because. Uh... I didn't think about this until I was watching the movie, but and I don't know. I guess, I guess I don't know how feasible this would be, but like, I feel like a lot of the tension in the classroom could have been quelled by by at least hiring maybe an interpreter to maybe sign him while he's teaching the class. Oh, absolutely. I don't know if that's something that's really feasible, but I don't know. No, I th- I mean I don't know what the budget at the particular elementary school. Uh, was but so in my classes at in college uh we had uh one of my classmates was actually a friend of mine she was hard of hearing uh she needed someone to basically type up uh, what the instructor was saying and like as show notes for the students and 
you know, because she couldn't like hear what the teacher was saying a lot. So, she, you know, it was like an assistance uh, for her, like that was there for every class uh, to kind of help her, you know, understand the, the lesson plan, uh, kind of present her like with what the teacher was saying, you know, help guide her. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think that the teacher definitely could have done that, but he made absolutely no, but any attempts to change the schedule in any way, he actively rebelled against it. It was up to the students to do everything for him. He didn't want to do it himself. Yeah, yeah. and I mean, that's, I mean, I I know it's it's kind of a thing over there in, in Japanese schools, from what I understand, to kind of give the students enough freedom to do certain things on their own and whatnot. But I, I just feel yeah. like that's kind of a mistake in trusting all these all these sort of extra steps to to helping other disabled students on other students. I just feel like that's mm. I feel like that's probably a big reason why a lot of this stuff happened in the first place. Yeah, cuz obviously the kids yeah. are uh, like especially you know elementary uh schoolers are going to get tired of, you know, doing all this extra stuff. I would think that Yeah, I've seen instances. Oh, um I would think that in um that in in a in a <laughs> This this is just what I um in a, in a classroom that was actually kind of you know well run you'd either have an aide or in a Japanese classroom if you wanted to give the students um some more responsibility you could have the students delegate and designate somebody to be um to be there for Nishimiya mm-hmm. kind of like what they uh, kind, uh, kind of like what uh, uh Sahara was attempting to do yeah. instead of just um instead of just putting it on to Ueno all the time because you know she sits next to Nishimiya. And that, Let's not ask her how she feels, outside of just saying, yeah, I know it's a kind of a burden and you're kind of tired of her. They did not, um, the teacher has a, the, t- the teacher could have done something to, uh, to work within the confines of student freedom, and the school could have done something to work with Nishimiya. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and truthfully, he just did not put in the effort. He wasn't interested. He, like, he just saw Shoko as kind of like an annoyance that he had to deal with in his classroom, and he didn't work with her directly one-on-one. He did pass that off onto the students to deal with, and just ignored how the situation was playing out. And then when things got bad, and Shoko was hurt, and complaints were sent to the school's way, like, he found a path seat to blame in Shoya, even though he had admitted mm-hmm. to him before that, hey, you know, I understand how you feel bullying Shoko. He gives a very half-assed uh, saying, hey, don't do this, bullying is wrong, but then he's like, he turns around immediately after and says, yeah, I understand how you feel. So he kind of is complicit in kind of normalizing that behavior then, like saying, oh, it's okay, because I understand that where you come from, rather than saying, no, this is flat out wrong, and have empathy for this person that you're treating so horribly. Like, he does not impart, yeah. He even laughs at yeah. some of Shoya's jokes that he makes about Shoka, which I think is just, it's just totally, like, wrong. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Openly hostile to Shoko. Or at least passive-aggressively. Yeah. Hmm. So, I'm gonna say, I will definitely say that the homework teacher is horribly negligent and is basically a one-on-one example of the kind of teacher you want to avoid being if you ever want to consider yourself, in an honest sense, like a good mentor or a decent human being. However... Just to play devil's advocate, the job of the homeroom teacher specifically is something that is very time-consuming. It's not just like a full-time job. It's kind of a vocation, a mm-hmm. calling. Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. You have, 
Yeah, yeah. So you're familiar with um, how homeroom teachers and how Japanese teachers in general are like in Japan. They have to report early、mm. in the morning and they get off、um, in the evening, sometimes late in the evening, have to involve themselves not only with lesson preparation, but in extracurriculars. Like in, like in schools in Japan, teachers are not only expected to teach their Uh, normal lessons, but they're also expected to be involved in student life as well, up into like in the evening or late in the evening. Their your entire life, not just like from like seven to five, but your entire life basically revolves around kids and、um, a lot of kids.、Um, and as like teachers know, kids can be like handfuls to you know freaking handfuls.、Mm-hmm. So it's natural sometimes for homeroom teachers, even in the case of like the one in the silent voice, to wish that sometimes things were smoother and simpler, at least on some days.、Mm-hmm. But here's the thing about homeroom teacher jobs, especially teacher jobs, but homeroom teacher jobs especially, you are literally teaching like the next generation of society. Like kids in schools are basically taught for two reasons. Practical skills and social skills,、mm-hmm. right? Kids、um, become adults, and schools are supposed to prepare kids for the adult world. That includes like finding work and making a living, but it also includes working with others and getting along with others as a member of society. So, how do you expect people then, kids becoming adults, to do well in society if they? Are raised by jerks or raised in a jerkish environment that is encouraged by the homeroom teacher, right? Like I would say that that was、um, that what what Oima was tr- was trying to do is that this that was kind of、uh, that that he was doing everything right. As、uh, I I view I view him as kind of a representation of of Japanese society as a whole, especially when he starts talking about how. Um, about about how、uh, Shoya is a fine young man in high school, just based off of the high school that he went to. He、um, one of one of the, one of the worst things I think that he does is he undermines the teacher from、uh, the hearing classroom. Yeah, and and、mm-hmm. goes along with what um what um Wena is、yeah, talking about, which of course gives her the which gives her the idea that this is right and this is what I should be doing. He doesn't reprimand、mm-hmm. her. He just says, you know. You know that does that that just kind of sounds bad. You know why would we want to do that? Yeah, this is an inconvenience. How can you, as someone who also does not learn a sign language, kind of propose this idea that we all should learn sign language to help Shoko? Like, where do you come from the authority if you yourself don't even know how to teach this? Yeah, I think it's 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 a symptom of like how Japanese schools work. They're in like Japanese schools and classrooms. You have your main teacher. And sometimes you also accompanied with like an assistant teacher could be an ALT like me,、um, and it could also be like a support teacher or in the case of the story, a, like a sign language teacher. He, as the homeroom teacher, has seniority over、um, like everyone else, not only his kids but also like the others that are considered like guests in his classroom because they have seniority and authority. Like the homeroom teacher, like suggesting or making passive-aggressive comments, is something that, as the like assistant teacher, the the teacher that's not like the main teacher, is not supposed to like directly challenge. 
Does that make sense? It does. How so? How it worked when I uh, so when I was working in American schools is one mm. of the biggest things you don't want to do in front of kids, especially young kids in elementary school, is undermine the authority yeah. of an adult because that takes away mm-hmm. the power of an adult. Which I mean, that, that does sound kind of bad, as a, but like sometimes kids need to know that when an adult says no, that there there's somebody that you should listen to. Like in the case of bullying. I would be a lot less effective if um if if a student didn't think that I had the power to say to just be like that's just, no, when I, when I say that, you can't do that that's terrible. How it works is like if I did something stupid which you know I've done or made a dumb suggestion the teacher would, or somebody else would just be would, like take me aside a little bit afterwards and be like hey let's not do that but um that that that's let's talk about that suggestion ourselves like like out here. Inst- um, instead of just outright being, no, no, that's dumb. No, that's dumb. I do think that that's, a, um, to get political, I do think that that's kind of a representation of when so when somebody tries to propose something in America or in Japan, when it comes to, when it comes to people that are disabled, maybe we should do a bit more mm-hmm. to help them. Maybe we should, um, maybe, maybe we should do this and this and this. Especially since Japan's a very, very con- has a very conservative parliament right now. Mm-hmm. There's always the, the man that's just kind of standing off in the corner going, you know, we could do that, but why? You can't even do that yourself. What gives you the right to say that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, undermining other authority figures that could make changes for the better. I mean, that is what Takeuchi does to the uh, assistant teacher that's trying to help Shoko. He literally calls her out in front of the classroom and says, you're not embarrassed making the students learn something you don't know yourself. And by like undermining her authority and credibility like that in front of the entire class and making other kids chuckle at that, like it makes it impossible to do her job after that, to have any credibility with the students. Like yeah. It's a miracle that like Sahara volunteers to learn sign language after that. You, can, like, you can just see, like, oh... Oh dear God! Thank you, Sahara. Yeah. Oh, so... I would have literally died without you. She like her look of her. Yeah. Life is just... yeah. I don't know if there's a cultural difference in how in, in how seniority works. There, there still is definitely a packing order in America. Like, I if a teacher if a teacher dressed me down in front of the class, I couldn't say anything about that because I am but a lowly paraprofessional. Yeah. Yeah. And I know the hierarchies are a lot more strict in Japan, but. Yeah. I mean, there, there's base, it depends on, like, the teacher in terms of their attitude, but um, seniority does rule in classrooms, ultimately. If the homeroom teacher disapproves of something, we can't, as an assistant teacher myself, can't really, like, voice my complaints or make um, a direct challenge regarding that. I just have to go with the flow. I'm always constantly reminded myself that I'm not the primary teacher in the classroom. The primary teacher is the homeroom teacher or, like, the the teacher in junior high school, so I have to defer to them, always. Yeah. Which also kind of makes me think, why did he give her the floor in the first place? I think that he, it was just, he had to, because it was, oh, like it was courtesy. Like, she had something she wanted to address to the class, and he was like, alright, do your thing, I won't get involved. But then, it, it got to a point where it's like, wait, you're going to make me participate in this too? And that's when he, like, spoke out against her. Which of course reinforced Duano's idea that this is that oh changing things is bad, <laughs> and yeah, of course nobody got her in trouble for bullying uh, Sahara, which 
That's a story. It all goes back to this one scene that really resonated with it because this happened to me a few times. I'm totally not just focusing on it because I connected to it emotionally. <laughs> so, so what we're saying is the real villain of a silent voice is the public schooling system. Actually, yes, <laughs> that is yeah. a, it, it's 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 the it's the political system, the societal system, and everything, uh, and the people that and the people that are content to make it work. This is actually a revolutionary doctrine. This is praxis, my dudes. This is praxis. Yeah, I mean, it is. Oh, yeah, yeah. these cultural values of like, oh, we're going to make the pretense to be inclusive, but we're not actually going to address like how to actually make changes to help people really we're just trying to push away problems when they pop up and trying to in general just get along just trying to keep like this sense of uh status quo going and not ruffle any feathers you're entitled yeah if you're entitled if you want to go into mainstream society you are entitled how dare you like Mm. You're just causing problems for everybody else. This is a thing that I kind of experience as somebody who has uh, mental disabilities in Japan and in America. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of like, I, there's always the stigma of, you're bringing down everybody else, which Shoko yeah. has to deal with directly. She's being constantly told that she's bringing down everybody else for wanting to be friends or wanting to be a part of things. Yeah, You've just caused problems. Come on, just, just, just stay, stay, stay away from us. It's okay. Oof. It's okay. You're an alien. It's alright. I mean, that is how Taki, both Takuji and Naoka think of Shoko. They think, oh, she, she's trying to make problems for everyone by coming in here and trying to integrate with everyone else despite her being different and having different needs and making everyone kind of have to accommodate her. And that is burdensome and she should feel guilty for that. Like yeah. she should, it is her fault that problems have arisen because she is like the outside element that has come in that has ruffled the status quo of things. And that is how Sh- uh, Shoya thought yeah, at first, yeah. too. He saw her as like the literal like alien coming in, which is uh, reinforced with this uh, Space Invaders game metaphor. And also, the two days mm-hmm. prior to first see Shoko, she's holding out the I'm Death sign uh, thing in her notebook. And like he sees like this vision of space and then her. Uh, the moon and the earth, like her in space, like she is like this foreign alien element that's coming. Oh yeah, in. that spread in particular when I first read a silent voice, that was the sign to me that that screamed, "This is a good manga." Mm-hmm. It's definitely one of my favorite spreads. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, beautiful mm-hmm. artistic uh, metaphors uh, throughout this manga. I mean, Whee! and artistry paneling, sense of temporal temporal exploration and contrast like Oima is just a fantastic artist in her compositions mm-hmm. i guess uh, to oh. extrapolate or to move uh from the topic of like the the role in complicity of the teachers you know in creating you know and te- imparting values onto the students that have kind of mess up their kind of social values and the way they think of mm-hmm. themselves and each other i mean let's go on and and discuss like how we feel about how the series explores like that trauma that they've kind of encumbered from those formative years and how they are trying to work through them in their teen years. Uh, I mean, particularly kind of from this situation and like this kind of collective trauma of this bullying situation, like how they are trying to deal with kind of the guilt each person feels in the situation. Like every person feels guilty in one respect for how things played out in the situation. 
and then like how they try to kind of confront or accept that guilt when everything is reconnecting in the story of the series. We we might have already gone through this earlier, but I I don't know. I I feel like it's probably safe to say that uh characters like I I guess I guess Miki kind of, but Naoka deals with it by really not dealing with it at all because she doesn't feel really feel guilty about anything she does. Yeah, I mean to a point. Like there is a self-awareness on her part where she does feel bad about the way she lashes out at other people. Like she does feel like like there in particular after the scene where she is, you know, beaten Shoko but and is in turn beaten by Shoko's mother and she's like kinda you know, after the resolution of that fight, like she's talking to Sahara and she's saying, like, why am I like this? Why do I like act out like this, lash out violently and make things worse. Like, there is an acknowledgement there that she knows that her course of actions, that the way that she treats Shoko, and particular her use of violence as a tool to communicate and impart, like, how she feels on others, is wrong and it hurts people and it's not productive, but that is, like, how she has learned to communicate, like, her feelings and how to get her way. And she feels, she's grappling with that feeling of guilt there what kind of gets me about naoka because I, I mentioned earlier how on my first uh, on my first read i had a very like aggressive view on a lot of the characters because it's my it was my first time reading through the series like i i think i was actively wishing for bad things to happen to to shoya when, when i when <laughs> i first read the beginning oh, um <laughs> i oh. i think i think at one point <laughs> like you get to that scene where like you know all the people that he thought were his friends, you know, have bullied him, and he's just kind of sitting in his room eating cake and, like, trying to make it sound like he's just hanging out with his friends, trying to kind of cover it up from his mom, and he's just sitting there laughing, eating his cake and crying, and I've, I vividly remember just being like, yeah, that's right, you don't get any friends, like, I, (laughs) but, um, I mean, obviously... That was heartbreaking. And then it just, like, strings out the pain <laughs> throughout the entirety of the series. And yeah. you're just like, maybe no one deserves this yeah, kind yeah, of treatment. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. I mean, oh my gosh, what makes that scene so painful to me is just that, like, he thinks he's fooling his mom by, by pretending everything's okay. But you can clearly see that her, her his mom knows that something's yeah. off, like, from the way that Shoya is yelling. Like, she knows that it's just his voice he's talking to himself, and so... Like, she has a customer there, and she's like, I'm sorry for my son, because she's not fooling anyone. And it's it's a very uncomfortable, but very sad scene of Shoya, like, trying desperately to pretend everything is okay, when, like, he's eating this cake and crying and suffering so oh, yeah. much. I mean, in retrospect, it's obviously really sad, and uh, it's really weird for me to say, but, like, I felt a little sorry for him, even though he's the bully, but we'll get to that in just a little bit, because I feel like there's a lot to unpack there. But well, what I wanted to say was about Naoka in particular, where I definitely was obviously, I was very much against her all the way through in my first read. But on the second read, I, I couldn't help but notice that, you know, obviously I don't agree with the way that she lashes out, and it's obviously a terrible way of dealing with her problems, but... At the same time, it was kind of interesting to see that, like, when you really pay attention to what she says, that, like, you know, every once in a while, um, she's not necessarily justified, but it's kind of understandable, like, how she would feel about certain things. Like, when she talks to Shoko in the Ferris wheel, you know, 
she is kind of rightfully upset about how passive Shoko can be to the point where like she's not really she doesn't she's not really like very straightforward with people. She doesn't really like, you know, communicate with other people very well about like how she's actually feeling. And then, you know, she's also rightfully upset actually when, you know, Shoko tries to tries to commit suicide. And you could even argue that's kind of the whole reason she's uh, she's taking her anger out on Shoko in that scene outside of the hospitals because she is upset that she almost killed herself. It's just it's just kind of interesting that like when you really when you look at her every once in a while she she does actually have a some like a somewhat justifiable reason for uh reacting the way she does even if she does so really terribly you know I mean she is trying to make amends throughout the manga with Shoya in particular like she has feelings mm-hmm. for Mosley but she also feels guilty about how she treated him in the fallout with Shoka's bullying situation she. I mean, the reason she holds uh, lingering resentment for Shoko is that she believes that she was the obstruction that ruined her relationship with Shoya, and Shoya's relationship with the rest of the class, and created his social isolation. So, that lingering resentment is still there with Shoko, and she is frustrated that, like, Shoko has become an important part of Shoya's life, but once she realizes that, she is trying to make peace with Shoko, and just, she doesn't want to be friends with Shoko, but she and the Ferris wheel scene is saying, hey, you know, we have our differences. I don't like you. In fact, I hate you. But, you know, I'm willing to just let bygones be guyons here. Like, if we both understand each other on the same level. And then Shoko is not being... And she's frustrated, like, with Shoko's uh, defeatism. Like, saying that she hates herself. Because, you know, Naoko doesn't know how to really deal with that. And she doesn't want that burden of guilt put on her. And that's why she lashes out. Uh, but Noko also can't hate herself. She Noko can't hate herself. There's nothing she could have done. You know mm-hmm. she. You know maybe she should have talked to Shoya. But you know as she says, there's nothing she could have done. Because mm. I think she really hates herself. I can see that. Yeah. But she doesn't want to. She doesn't want no. to. I, what, what my reading of her is, she hates herself and she doesn't want to admit it. Yeah. So she lashes out at others, and. She uh, she's also got others who hide their feelings because she's using her more aggressive feelings to cover up the one truth <laughs> that she can almost admit, but she doesn't want to. Absolutely, I think that conversation with Sahara after the fight with Mishimiya is like kind of the most vulnerable we see her, and the most honest she is about like herself and her own uh, self hate. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean Naoka ultimately does start to take the first step in, like, meeting Shoko on her level and trying to kind of be a friend to her as well in addition to uh, Shoya. And, like, it takes time, but we see that, you know, they are hanging out together in the coming-of-age ceremony at the the final chapter. So a relationship is being formed there. Like, even earlier, like, uh, when they go out to dinner after the end of the movie and she teases Shoko a little bit, you know, Mm -hmm. they have a little laugh. Mm Mm-hmm when she suggests that she'll go buy the kitty meal. So they're starting to form more of a friendship there. So she also is trying to change. Mm-hmm. And like she admits to Shoya, like uh, at a confrontation, second black judge of the manga, like about, you know, her feelings, her situation, and that she, you know, hates that she hasn't really been able to change in the same way that she he has. But Shoya tells her that, hey, it's like, okay. I mean, 
I can see that you are trying now. And then it's that's kind of like at the moment that Shoya also starts to also see her on her level and see her as a person again, like without the X mark, mm-hmm. you know, because for most of the manga, like even after reconnecting, Shoya still perceives Naruto with the X because he's not willing to really engage with her for her mm-hmm. instead of just thinking of her as how he's always thought of her. as like kind of a, a bully to Shoko that isn't able to, you know, change and treat her better. And yeah. so he doesn't want to acknowledge her, mm-hmm. but that definitely changes as he comes to understand her better as well. And Yuzuru just gets it right mm. off the bat because Yuzuru is the best. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> she's very good. I think like a yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. I was, no, I was just gonna <laughs> say she's very good. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. I, I would just say so. Both Naoka and Shoko they are stuck in some pretty like toxic mindsets about themselves mm-hmm. um mindsets that like formed in their like early years of life and have not been challenged until like a decade later so i think it's understandable even if it is frustrating for shoko to have such a hard time trying to get away from being passive and at the same time the other side of the coin Noka is always, her reaction to everything is always to lash out and to attack on other people. Her, like, mindset of trying to be more empathetic and trying to listen more, that's something that also um, is a challenge for her and takes time as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I think that's what I like about the series so much is that we really come to understand, like, the way each of the characters think about themselves and their own insecurities about how others perceive them and how well, like inadequate they are compared to other people. Like the fact that, oh, I can't be as good as this person or resenting, oh, this person is better than me in this way or has this relationship that I uh, don't have with this person. And I really yeah. appreciate the way it explores mm-hmm. like, that mindset and then them working through like, okay, I'm going to focus on changing myself to be the person I I can like myself be. Right. I mean, as third-party like observers, people reading the manga we, or watching the anime, uh, we can like sc- like scream internally or even externally about how like some characters are so dense and why they can't make these like changes that are obviously healthy and are, keeps themselves stuck in ways that are destructive not only to others but to themselves. But I think what a silent voice does very well is to like lay out why they have these mindsets to begin with, why they think the way they do to begin with, and like show how difficult it is being so stuck in these ways from like an early part of their childhood to change that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really is great, even if it doesn't like say like all these characters um are good um because mm. it shows many of these characters being very bad having very self-destructive and destructive like tendencies and habits even though it shows them in like very bad situations doing very bad things thinking themselves in very twisted and warped ways you can understand where that thinking comes from and sympathize with it and still hope for the best even though they struggle with changing. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's why it really helps to have the manga take place where it does. Like, the first volume is 
when they're in elementary school, they don't really have the uh, the teachings or the experience to know how to deal with all these thoughts that they have just experienced. But by the time that they are um, in the later years of high school, they really have those moments and those or that retrospective to be able to go back and say, this is what happened to me. This was bad, this was good, or uh, I'm just a terrible human being yeah. and don't care. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it takes of, uh, out of, like a perfect kind of, of pivotal turning point in their lives, their last year of high school, basically the last year before they become adults, uh, last year's kids. So they're like having to kind of reconcile, you know, their past childhood traumas, their feelings about themselves, their kind of insecurity, like, you know, as they approach, you know, this huge change in their lives that's coming up and the fear of, you know, needing the change to adapt to that and the series explores how hard it is to change how hard it is to adapt after being set in your ways uh for so long but i mean what's important is the effort to change making that effort and mm. even if you aren't there completely you know you can still uh, take comfort in the fact that others can see that you're trying like uh, as shoya says that he can see now goes trying yeah and it's very great that while they are trying, that they have a support network behind them that encourages them to be better and to like comfort them and give them a leg back up when they do happen to fail. Right? For Shoya, for example, he has his mother. I mean, I imagine it would be a very short and far more tragic story if Shoya underwent all of this like bullying in his life and he didn't have his mother to like tell him to comfort him and to like pull him away from the edge mm-hmm. or pedro who protected him <laughs> always <laughs> pedro was always there for him <laughs> he kept his promise and in the same token i think one of the biggest like adult like support figures in Shoko's life was her grandmother. Mm -hmm. And you can see how much her life becomes like the spiral downward right after um, her grandmother dies. Oh my gosh, yes, Mm. that really causes like a big shift in their house because the grandmother was such like kind of a central pillar of support and kindness for both. I mean, for all the members of the family, Shoko, Yuzuru, and Mrs. Ishinya, like, they all relied on the the grandmother for emotional support, and then with her gone, they were all kind of lost in their own ways, and then they weren't able to communicate with each other as well. Like, I mean, the mm-hmm. grandmother was the one who, who knew sign language, who was, like, communicating with sign language with Shoko and Yuzuru. Like, Mrs. Ishinya, like, she had her own reasons, but she didn't want to engage in sign language with Shoko, and she actively told them not to use it at the table. But, like, independently, separately, like, she had a good relationship with all three where she was encouraging. And, yeah, like, they, they lost. Yeah. Just imagine how, like, shorter and how much more tragic Shoko's life would be without her grandmother. Mm-hmm. Because, as we saw, like, Yuzuru wasn't enough to, like, take Shoko away from, like, her suicidal like, thoughts self-loathing yeah. her suicidal thoughts and i feel so Dead bad birds. for you sort of i mean too. that's so true because i mean this was the most heartbreaking chapter for me is 
you know, in the aftermath of Shoko's suicide and them coming back from the hospital, Yuzuru was taking on all the photos that her mother joins her and she tells her mother, I took these photos because I thought if I showed, you know, Shoko pictures of that, she would not want to do it. And it's like, it's so heartbreaking that she, that she was trying so hard to prevent her sister from thinking uh, this way about going down this path. And it was, I mean, the temperature was tall. It's titled, It Was All for Nothing. And, like, the fact that and the old, every member of the family comes in the room and cries then, is, it just broke, breaks my heart so much. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, like, even though she tries so hard, Mrs. Nishimiya, like, she also was not really engaging with her daughter and what she wanted on her own level. So she also was not seeing the warning signs uh, in the same, same way. She also couldn't be, like, uh, that emotional support Shoko could feel comfortable confiding in, which is probably mm-hmm. one reason probably why she kept a lot of the bullying to herself beyond like her own feeling of guilt of like feeling like, oh, she shouldn't burden anyone with her problem. But like, this is Yushimiya's solutions were like to be, hey, I'm gonna, we should cut Shoko's hair to make her more like a boy, to give her at least like the presentation of toughness so no one would mess with her. Like, she's very protective of Shoko, but, you know, she's also very burdened, stressed out. Like, she also doesn't know, like, really how to deal with this situation. She's trying her best, but, you know, it is a lot for her. Is she trying her best? I think so. Well, I I think, because she is so... It's the wrong approach. Yeah, it is, because she's not really talking with... She's not really communicating with Shoko and trying to do what she wants uh, but like uh, one of the reasons that I mean Shoko went to school is because of this idea that Miss Nisho wanted Shoko to live a normal life and that's also why she refuses to engage in the sign language and considers it vulgar uh, in her words when she sees like the rest of the family doing it it's like she doesn't want Shoko to be different be treated differently she wants her to integrate but Shoko is having challenges. She's having struggles, and she has her own way of doing things, her own interests, and she's just being controlling in a way that is not a lot of, you know, giving Shoko the freedom to be herself, but also putting her in situations that she that she feels like she is making trouble for her mother, making trouble for the other people around her. They're just fueling that self-hate inside of her, and she's not noticing that. But she does love her daughter. She is trying in her way, but her approach is ignoring the feelings of Shoko and is in part responsible for, like, kind of the situation she found herself in. Mm, so she she wants Shoko to be strong and independent for her own good. Mm-hmm. So like, she sincerely loves her daughter and she wishes nothing for the best of her. But what Shoko really needed uh, at this point in time that her grandmother was able to give her and was a loss for her once her grandmother passed away. A devastating loss mm-hmm. was love and support. Yeah. Absolutely. And unfortunately, the mother, up until like the point uh, or of Shoko's suicide attempt, did not think or maybe was incapable of being able to give that to her. Yeah. I mean, we definitely see that perception in our children. Like, Yuzuro thinks after the grandmother's passing that she's being emotionally distanced, that she is not quite once over her grandmother's passing, and clearly that's not true. Shoya notices that Ms. Nishimiya is despondent. She is crying, like, silently to herself, but she is trying to put up this facade of being stronger for her children. She wants to teach her children to be strong and self-independent. But that fact that she has created this household where 
no one is allowed to be like emotionally honest with each other, like comfortable confiding their feelings with each other, like their burdens, their like problems. Like that is like, you know, again, burdening both Shoko to deal with that, those problems on her own. And, and she's not there, like as an emotional support to Shoko to help her, to help guide her through what she's going through in life. And by leaving her to fend for herself, like, she leaves Shoko also up to the possibility of making this self-harming decisions. Right. I think that she's a lot more involved in Shoko's life, but not in a way that's constructive for Shoko. Mm -hmm. Shoko's extremely, extremely deaf. It must have been extremely difficult for her to learn not only sign language, but basic Japanese mm -hmm. the, um, to the point where she can write. It's very, very difficult for people who are at that level of deafness to be able to write because writing, especially in Japanese, and is uh, phonetic. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, kanji might be a little bit easier to do because it's visual, but a lot of it's phonetic, and if you don't actually mm -hmm. understand what those phonics are, she can obviously hear vibrations, but if even with hearing aids, she can't really make out what other people are saying. Mm -hmm. I think uh -huh. that it's depicted really well in the chapter where we do see kind of how Shoko perceives the world and how she is hearing how people talk. And it's like these cut-off letters, mm -hmm. but not only are they cut off, but they are also distorted. Like, they are mispronounced interpretations of what people are saying. Yeah, and that's with the yeah. hearing aids. Yeah. Um, I, um, so I was reading... Um, I, the, the, there's, a, there's this wonderful master post by this dude named Wildbow who's uh, partially deaf on um, how this kind of works if you have this neurological disorder. Shoko's brain is constantly attempting to fill in the blanks on what she's hearing. She, um, I think in, I think the, uh, the anime does a better job of um, doing this. I'm not entirely sure if this is just me projecting or not. I think the hearing aids either hurt her or she doesn't really like them, which is kind of understood. Like, she's only wearing one for most of the anime. After her ear gets scarred in the manga, she has to go. She's in the doctor's office for a scene, and I'm not entirely sure what that was supposed yeah, to mean. Yeah, I wasn't sure if that was supposed uh, to be. I think for... it's supposed to mean that she is going to get to a point where she can't even use the hearing aids. Yeah, which that's that. It, there is there is a point where the if the body isn't um, where some people just can't use them, it hurts them, and. How she uh, how it seems to work for her is she can barely hear, which means that her mind's like mine with ADHD. I have to work overtime in order to focus on things. Somebody who's deaf has to work overtime to fill in the blanks on what they're hearing and what they're not hearing. They comp um, a lot of them compensate by being overly expressive and over enunciating and things like that. Whereas Shoko was constantly taught to keep her emotions in, which. Must have been extremely difficult for her, but also encouraged to be mainstream, to use her voice, and to not use any of the tools that are out there for people who are deaf. Mm -hmm. So I think that her mom is extremely active in her life, just in an extremely detrimental way. Because mm -hmm. it looks like she's putting in a lot of legwork. A very, very busybody mom. My mom was kind of the same way when it came to me in school, which I came to resent because she also didn't listen to me. So, right. I mean, she's definitely a presence in Shoko's life. I mean, like, imagine but having a mom that literally will not mm -hmm. speak yeah. the same language mm -hmm. as you, because uh, mm -hmm. at least in the case of ASL to English, those are not the same languages. They have different or sentence structures and sentence compositions and stuff. So, um, she is outright refusing to learn that, and that's why 
the grandma was even more of a, a central character for Shoko because uh, she was able to have someone to just have a conversation with. I think she didn't have to uh, go through any mental translations from Japanese sign language to Japanese. Yeah, and you can also, even so, though, even you can acknowledge that her mother was detrimental to her daughter in a number of ways. You can see where her mindset of like being strong, independent, and distant comes from, because she's a single working mother. Her husband left um, their marriage and left her to fend for herself and her daughters and her mother. She had to grow up to be strong and independent, to be the primary caregiver for her household. So I guess what I'm saying is that all that she knows, or all that she primarily knows, is to be strong and independent. Mm-hmm. So that's why that's her approach to her daughter. Yeah. I mean, I think that's just another example of, like, trying to treat others and part others like how you see the world or how you think that, you know, they should behave or exist within this framework of society, whereas that might not be what they need or what is best for them or what they are capable of. Mm-hmm. Like when she rips off Mrs. Ishida's earring. Yeah. You're, 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 she, she wants to impart how, um, how she thinks the world should work on everybody else because she's got no power. She feels like she has no power in her own life. So maybe she can get, she get does, her- yeah, react violently out of that frustration for sure yeah that feeling of internal helplessness it's really interesting because i actually didn't notice that until i watched the movie oh yeah it's very very subdued in the manga yeah i really i literally had to go back to the first volume and like look for the page and like if you're not actively looking for it it's pretty easy to miss you can yeah. notice it in the mm. panel, but the movie emphasizes it because it shows Shoya's reaction to it. In the manga, it doesn't show Shoya's reaction, but in the movie, we not only have a close-up on the ear and see the blood trickle, but we see Shoya notice that and realize what happened and what has happened because of him in particular. There is the blood trickle in the manga, and there is the reaction. It's just, you kind of think that it's more... It's it's emphasized more in the anime. For sure, general, yeah. You can actually there's a see... lot of things, I feel, that are emphasize more in the the childhood scene in general than in the manga, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. Hmm, and I think that's a good decision on the part of the like anime to emphasize how much Shoya feels guilty about the burden that he feels he's put on his mother. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, especially since, you know, with a movie, you can't control the pace at which you are taking in the information with the manga. I mean, you could study the panel to notice it, but if it was that blink and you miss it in the anime, like, the necessary information, yeah. like, wouldn't get across to the viewer. Mm-hmm. I just feel really bad for everybody, because they're... Yeah, I feel... <laughs> okay, except ex- except Mickey. I don't feel bad for her. Even the homeroom teacher. You, oh. uh, you know what? You know what? I've had days where I'm just like, you know what? Fuck them kids. <laughs> I don't want to deal with it. Dude, I, I look, I will say, I've been dealing with this all day. Uh, it's, I, it's a full-time job. I, I will say, <laughs> after, after, listening, after listening to, I guess, both sides here, I, I can't kind of understand where the teacher's coming from a little bit, but at the same time, man, he's still not a very good guy. Oh, no, God, no. No, he's not. No. You know, it, at least I regret some days where I was just like, okay, kid, just... 
I don't care. <laughs> uh, and he's just like, no, no, you know what? It was a shame. It was a shame. But hey, you turned out okay. And, you know, she was really selfish, wasn't she? You know, imposing herself onto this god. What a jerk. Oh, man. It's like, yeah. You just have to wonder, like, what what's in his... Why he decided to become a teacher in the first place if he thinks, like, kids can be this, like, bad or this annoying for him to deal with. Mm. I don't think I, I he guess ever grew up. He, he, he's not a very no, patient guy. Um, and kids require a lot of, like, patience to deal with. And there's all sorts of kids. You got your good kids and you got your very special kids. Yes. Yeah. I mean, we don't get too much of his background of, like, why he wanted to be a teacher. I mean, maybe the job just wore on him over the years at Point Grey. Just be, had no patience and was flippant and frustrated with students as easily as we saw in the manga. But, yeah, from what is presented, he does seem like he does not feel any remorse for what he has done, for sure. Like, he feels that he reacted appropriately, and he also feels that, oh, he was validated by the fact that Shoya went to the same school as he did, and, like, by seeing Shoko kind of return to the school and seeing that Shoya learned sign languages communicating with Shoko now, like, he says, oh, you were. See, I told you, you grew up and you're a fine student after all. Like, everything, in from his point of view, everything has worked out, even though he imparted a lot of trauma onto his students that they are still dealing with, and they are still struggling with that he is yeah, just, he's, so he's my the- dad oh my <laughs> god, oh my god. He, no! he might as well have been like you know that bullying you went through when you were a kid really built character huh that's exactly what he did he literally said that <laughs> oh god i'm gonna just uh just gonna eat myself out a window and don't worry don't worry we're on the ground floor yeah the, the really horrible thing about his whole like his whole experience with his kids was the primary lesson that he imparted on them and that like it's never anyone's fault that something bad happens unless you happen to get fingered or blamed for it and everyone else is perfectly innocent otherwise like when he accuses like Choya of his bullying he does not acknowledge any like responsibility for the fact that he let it get as bad as it did, and that it's his classroom, so it should be his responsibility. No, it's always Shoya's. Um, He fingers all the blame on him, and he encourages all of his other kids to say, no, it's not any of your responsibility, others. It's the Fall Guys. It's just one of those things you have to deal with. Which I really like that that's repeated throughout the whole thing, because that's it can mean good things and bad things, depending on how it's taken, and he imparted the bad version of it. Yeah, in, in that sense, I feel like he is less of, like, his own character and more of just, like, an encapsulation of, like, what's wrong with certain types of teachers and maybe, like, thinking in Japanese culture as a whole. That one aspect that is about face-saving and avoiding responsibility oh, until it gets too bad, and you have to address it. But then, even then, if there's a way to get out of it by, like, throwing someone else under the bus, then let's do that. Yep. The out-group is the out-group. Mm-hmm. Keep them outside, and then throw somebody to the wolves if 
the if your in group is threatened. Yeah, and you can, I wonder why people think uh, of Japanese society in such a poor way mm-hmm. at times. Gee, I wonder. Hey, they, my my friends, my friends, they were nice. They liked us because they could talk to us about things, and also because they thought that it was funny that we said swear words. <laughs> <laughs> not, not, not to say that like there are so many kind and empathetic Japanese people out there, but there's that one aspect of it, especially among the people who are supposed to be the leaders of Japan, like business elites, the politicians that Abe Shinzo's are friends. All about that. I'm calling. I'm calling yeah. you. I'm calling you out. I mean, I know you're gone, Abe Shinzo, but everybody in your everybody in your administration, piece of trash. <laughs> Oh man! Yeah. <laughs> you may, oh, I wonder why. I wonder why the economy hasn't improved since the nineties. Maybe it's because you keep everything the same. <laughs> it's it, I, 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 J- Japan has an obsession with staying the same. I was talking with some teachers on um, on the curriculum and how it's been changing over the years. It was actually getting a lot more progressive, and there was a lot of things that were changing for people with disabilities. And then some corporate lobbying happened, and it's all starting to get reversed. There was a lot of visibility towards disabilities, apparently. I'm not, obviously, the most in touch with all of it. This is just hearsay from various like psychiatric professionals that I was talking to, um, my teachers that were... I was working in the uh, education um, department of my college there. A lot of a lot of the administrations just whenever whenever um, they take a step forward, they want to take two steps back. Oh no! So mm. Just like it, they'll they'll have um, like so some of my classmates um, they they didn't focus as much on standardized testing and started doing more projects and more uh, more group based activities. And then some kids that were younger than them were like, "Wait, we didn't get that!" <laughs> and it wasn't like an area thing; they went to the same school. Mm. Mm. Uh, I think this is actually, unfortunately, a pretty good time for me to drop off. You can put in that my hot take on the movie is like, I don't like it. Alright, here. If you need to go ahead and go, we'll let you go, and uh, I'll plug your stuff at the end of the conversation. Alright. Alright. Cool. See you later, Corey. Well, All right, good talking with y'all. Hey, Corey. Right, take Bye. He's wrong. What else do we want to talk about before we, uh, before we, you know, head out here at some point? Can you say there's questions need to answer? Yes, yes, I do want to, we did have some good questions that address on some points of conversation that we hadn't talked to yet. I mean, there's so much where to silent voice that we actually did not get to uh, touch upon on my outline. One thing I did want to mention, though, because it's very important, it's integral to the series premise, is Shoko's depiction as a deaf person, a person with a hard hearing disability, and Yoshitoki Oima, of course, is writing from uh, the experience of being the daughter of a sign language interpreter, and so, you know, knowing her mother's work, and you know, that inspired a lot of the writing in the series, a lot of what she depicts in the series in terms of the sign language, like how she saw uh, people with hard hearing disabilities treated. Also, of course, she worked with uh, organizations in Japan to run by, you know, appropriate uh, representation and stuff. But there also does not necessarily uh, alter the fact that, you know, Yoshitoko herself is not a deaf person. She does not have this ability. She doesn't live with it. So she can't really write from that lived experience. And from what I have heard from people who, you know, are hard of hearing, are deaf, like, 
they have uh, mixed opinions on Shoko's uh, representation in a silent voice. Like, a lot of people do feel that she is kind of a more fantastical, uh, archetypal character of, like, this put-upon girl with a disability who, you know, is not speaking out for herself. Like, as someone who needs to be rescued from her situation, like, who is not really given as much agency in her story. And also, in general, the exploration of, you know, what it means to live as a deaf person, like, the kind of experiences you have, like, that is not explored very deeply in Shoko's uh, story. And also, I think, you know, you shared uh, that Reddit post you mentioned earlier with me, Vix, from uh, Wildbow. And one thing that he went into that is that, you know, people in the deaf community, like, they have a community mm-hmm. of other people who are deaf who know sign language that they interact with they have their own culture they have their own way of communicating and i mean shoko is very removed from any other people with uh, disabilities like her Mm -hmm. and so that kind of culture is not represented there and that's kind of another aspect where she feels maybe alienated from what people who live with the disability you know actually experience because you know she she is isolated and she is I mean, she again. She we don't see until very late in the manga, like how she sees, interprets the world, mm-hmm. uh, how she hears, how she like the kind of sense of like how she is even interpreting sound. Uh, so I do want to acknowledge that there are some uh, problems, or maybe some criticism. Yeah. Well, there is definitely criticism. Yeah. But I think, I think the, it's valid. Yeah, I think the represent. I think the the criticism is valid, and I think that. One thing I would like to see, a project that I would love to do down the line, is to somehow do some sort of video podcast, like interviewing a person from the deaf community, like about their, you know, thoughts on Shoko and representation of silent voice, and in general, representation of deaf characters in anime manga media. Because I do think that's like, you know, a perspective, a voice that is not often heard. But yeah, I do think that uh, it's because of those aspects, it's not necessarily the most appropriate to think of a silent voice as a story about exploring a person with who has a hard of hearing disability who is deaf. It's more a story about bullying, uh, the consequences of childhood trauma mm-hmm. and how you grapple with them growing up and how it affects how you think of yourself, how you think of others, and then trying to move on in your life to kind of accept those elements of the past, uh, embrace them as you move forward to the future and you change and grow as a person. Which is why I also want to touch on the ending a bit, why I think the ending is so poignant, because in that final chapter, we see how every character has grown, how they have taken steps to kind of move beyond their comfort zones, feel more confident in themselves, reach out to people. And in particular, of course, the last image of Shoya and Shoko walking through the door to confront the literal past of their childhood, their elementary school, in the coming of age story morning, like going to their classroom reunion. Like, I think that is just absolutely so appropriate and poignant. Uh, really absolutely beautiful. Mm-hmm. I also think that the manga, um, for what it is, it, it could have gone two different ways, and 
it kind of depends on um on what you kind of wanted to get out of the series as one of the first major series that focuses on deafness and disability. The series is very very much about disability and the ways that it um that others interact with mm-hmm. it and societies and other people's views towards it. Cool. In addition to being about, you know, a coming of age story, but one but when Shoko's deafness comes into the story, it's less about how it affects her, but how it affects others. Oh, absolutely. Which, yeah. that's, mm-hmm. from one point of view, that's giving her less agency, that's um, that's making her less of a character, and that's making the deaf, and that's putting the deafness off to the side, instead of uh, focusing on it, and um, and, um, and, and having her act as, like, a cultural bridge for people who may not be involved in that sort of community, and those kinds of people, but it's also it's, Oima is not a deaf person, and it might be disrespectful for her to talk about those kinds of experiences when she hasn't had exactly, them. Exactly. Yeah. And, um, yeah. She's she's a person. She's a person on the outside of that community, which I, I do think that it uh, that Shoko like the way that Shoko's uh, perspective is saved until the end um, for this kind of story works extremely well. Mm-hmm. Like it's by design that we don't know what she's thinking because nobody wants to know what she's thinking. Mm-hmm. Which is unfortunate. I mean, except the user, because user is awesome. I'll also say about Shoko, yeah. I Lum, I don't I don't know if I brought this up on either podcast I recorded back in twenty fifteen, but I, I I I feel like it was it was probably either myself or somebody uh I had recorded with who, you know, probably took issue with how passive Shoko was, I think, during my first read. Mm. I didn't really fully understand that, you know, the first time I had read the series, I think, uh, I, or uh, I know someone I talked to in the past, uh, someone I was talking to in the past, you know, had issues with like, oh, how passive Shoko is and like, oh, well, why isn't she just stand up for herself or whatever? And, you know, I think, I, I think something I got out of this second read as someone who is on the spectrum, you know. I unfortunately I I can relate to I can relate to that self-hatred that comes from, you know, oh well I have this disability and I feel like a burden on people. Like that that was something I, I really dealt with a lot when uh when I when I was in middle school, uh, especially. Those were terrible times. But uh uh I, I think that's something I personally got out of this reread was just that like wow, I uh like really thinking back, like I think I really relate to these feelings of self-hatred like very personally they really hit home for me and i think and 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 i think when i when i viewed her struggles through that lens i feel like i i totally understand shoko's passiveness way more than i did the first time and uh for 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 me personally mm-hmm. that was very valuable yeah absolutely i also relate very much to shoko and the way she thinks about herself as like a burden artist, but also like her desire to, you know, just put on a smile, just try and make peace and just try desperately to be accepted to and not like kind of speak out and for herself to and let people know when she is feeling hurt or in trouble and just trying to take it all and then just still trying to interact with other people but like yeah just not being able to be honest with how she is feeling Mm -hmm. 
So if there's one thing I want to add regarding why Shoko isn't more connected with, or is depicted as being more connected with the deaf community in Japan, in Japanese schools, schools can recommend and they have resources for um, special needs kids and even like entire special needs classes. So they can get more like one on one specialized attention. But ultimately, the decision to enroll a student in special needs classes or to give students special needs aid formally is up mm-hmm. to the parents. Which she's definitely not going to do that. <laughs> yeah, because, well, the thing being that Shoko's mother is very much a person who wants to have her child be strong and independent. So enrolling her kid in a special needs school or a special needs class is kind of antithetical to that approach. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it might be a reason why she isn't more connected because her mother doesn't want her or isn't actively introducing her to support, um, social support elements such as like the larger, like deaf community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I absolutely think that, you know, Shoko's circumstances in the story, like kind of really make sense considering the context, like the way like the way that the world around her is like how you know her parent her mother is obviously making a lot of decisions for her in terms of what school she's going to and then she's also making a lot of decisions for herself in terms of trying to fit and trying to be normal in contrast to other people i mean we have that scene where she you know is trying to you know speak not with sign language but just regularly speak with shoya on the bridge mm-hmm. in the lead up to the suitcase mm-hmm. and that's a moment where like shoko is trying to kind of act in how she, how she perceives as normal by just speaking instead of using the sign oh, language. That, that scene hurts so much. Yeah, it's just like Shoko desperately wants to be like everyone else. That's why, like in the flash, in like the a dream sequence, like it in her like a uh, vocal chapter towards the end of the series, like it's it shows her imagining a world where like she can communicate with everybody through speech and they all get along. And mm-hmm. everything is working out. Like she definitely <laughs> wants to fit in. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So mm-hmm. I, I think Shoko's character, uh, like it's really superb. But I do understand uh, the criticisms that you know, in terms of representation, uh, it's not always the most satisfying to have to see like a character, you know, with a disability. Like think of it as like a burden. Uh, think of like the way that they are as burdensome. I think a lot of people in the deaf community want representation of a deaf character who is like proud of themselves, who is like, you know, fully functioning, self-confident. Like that is a more like uplifting, I think, representation a lot of people mm-hmm. might want to look for rather than someone who is like struggling. And especially from the perspective of, you know, able-bodied people who are like, trying to look out for them and like feel oh no this people is struggling because of their disability so we need to help her because she is struggling to help herself so i I understand the criticisms from that perspective for sure especially when representation is few and far between yeah yeah. because this like for like for any person like autistic trans like so i've got experience with like autistic and trans community it's like you're gonna you you get two ways to go about things. You can just take any representation you get and accept that you're probably not going to see a lot of positive characters with those traits, or you can just kind of rail against that. But <laughs> it's, 
Kai no Katachi's really at least is they're doing their it's doing its best. Just yeah. just just it's it's, just, it's, just it's coming from a genuine place, I think, which is good. Yeah. She's doing her Absolutely. best. Yeah. She's doing her best. She's doing the best she can. I mean, this series is about empathy. It has a lot of empathy for its characters. It tries to make you understand how each of them think, why they are the way they are, and like present them <laughs> as just like people who are trying their best in the world, even though they are hurting others, even though that they are struggling. Like they are in their own ways trying their best, and they are learning and changing. For the most part, our central cast is at the very least learning and changing, growing into better people. Yeah, and the people that aren't are bad people. <laughs> I like at the mm-hmm. end, everybody's still kind of an asshole. Just slightly less. Yeah, I, I, I also Not like how crazy. like they are trying to change, but I like how I like how everyone isn't just like suddenly better or a different person because obviously Rome wasn't built in the day. Mm-hmm. Look, you, you, you guys are twenty now. You're not gonna figure <laughs> out shit. No. Like at the, at the at the end of the series, the coming of age ceremony happens yeah. when you're when you're twenty. I, I actually almost was going to go to one, but I don't have a, I didn't have enough money for a kimono, so I was like, mm-hmm. nope, never mind. I had the because I turned twenty while I was in Japan. Um, uh. yeah, it's it's like this is uh, my favorite kinds of high school mangas are the ones where it's very realistic in that. You're not going to go through your whole character arc. You aren't going to figure shit out. You're in high school, your frontal lobe hasn't developed, and even you're probably never going to figure yourself out, and that's fine. Yeah. You're going to... They're at least it's, on the it's right okay. track. Yeah, you're, you're on the right track. You're not perfect, but you're on the right track, and that's my favorite kind of manga. I mean, I can, I'm okay with stuff that's like, they figure shit out. That's cool. That's nice. Yeah. Or they all die in the end. That's Aww. also really cool. Or they all die in the inside. <laughs> Like most adults. Oh, well, there, there's that too. Yes. Beautiful. So, Asylum Voice is good, huh? Uh, no, it's yeah. bad. Oh, that's... <laughs> I was lying the whole time. It's okay. It's okay. It's alright. It's alright. Right. Uh, I cried a little bit, but you know... Just a bit. I, I cried right. because it was so bad, you know. I, I, cried, I, I cried because Nagatsuka's a masterpiece of a movie didn't make it off the ground. Man, he got roasted. What I wanted the anime to be was a feature-length version of that movie. <laughs> with him, with him and the yeah. chaplain mustache the whole time. Oh. <laughs> and probably riding a motorcycle because he's chaplain as common Rider. I want to see a film yeah. adaptation of My Big Friend. <laughs> yes! Yeah. 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 We didn't talk about him much, but like... Naksuka is wonderful. He's, he's he's a poop head. He's like he's, he's he looks like Mineta, except he's not a terrible person. He predates Mineta. He kind of yeah. looks like a cross between Mineta and Steven Universe. <laughs> right? Looks like my friend Ethan. Yeah, you were mentioning that earlier. He has yes. probably one of my favorite moments in the manga, even like really early on, where like where Shoya is uh, walking home from being rejected by Yuzuru to uh, to see Shoko, and uh, he just he he just keeps wondering about like you know how how do you know when you're friends with someone? Like, what's it like to be a friend? And he's he's constantly in his own head wondering about friendship and whatnot and he immediately gets his answer by having nagatsuka bring back his stolen bike and the x falls off his face and then they're immediately friends and that's i think that's probably one of the most powerful moments in the series personally speaking i also like when uh, when nagatsuka is trying to act out every single movie he's ever seen he tries (laughs) to explain the meaning of friendship by pretending to be clint eastwood (laughs) when um 
I mean, it, it has positives and negatives, which is, of course, that's that's kind of what it is with every friendship. When Shoy, um, when Shoya is attempting to go uh, to, to go see Shoko, <laughs> Nagatsuka just it has followed him the whole time and beats the shit out of a child, and is like, "No, you will let my big friend in." <laughs> I mean, that helped. That did help Shoya. It helped Shoko know that he's there and so also, they could talk. I also, I also love his vibrations. They're very, they're very cool. Very, very cool vibration. He's, he's vibing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's vibing. Good the vibrations. Whole time. Just vibing in a silent, fuming like irritation. I have many friends. <laughs> yeah, he, he's he's the physical manifest, uh, manifestation of. I'm just vibing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he really is. <laughs> he's he's a, he's um he probably hasn't figured out his sexuality yet. He's a little bit misogynistic because he lives in a basement all his life, and he's a dumb shit. But I love him. Yeah. <laughs> You guys, don't don't be afraid. Notice how he only really, really gets mad when when uh, when uh, when other men try to move in on his big friend. Like I mean, that also, was the tipping point for him. He's also a little jealous of Choco uh, and Ueno when they. Oh, of course, of course. Them. Like he has fantasies about beating the shit out of them, but like Ueno, well, <laughs> yeah, Ueno and Mickey. But like, but like, but like, whenever he has outbursts in real life, it's because Satoshi's getting too near his big friend. Yeah, yeah. Which I'm like, mm. 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 he's kind of clingy. Yeah, he's, he's, yeah, yeah. Shoya's not the only one that's clingy. <laughs> oh God, no, God, no. We should get a whole adaptation of my big friend <laughs> analyzing Nagatsuka's um, <laughs> idolatry of Shoya. Huh. Uh, uh, the biggest friend of all. He's the big guy for you. <laughs> I mean, speaking of adaptations, perhaps that should take us into our questions. questions. And we got a couple from. Kit on Twitter, Kit, who hosts uh, the Tomo Chaka podcast, and she asks, like, how different are the manga and the movie? If I like the movie, is it more bigger yes. than the manga? And yes, yeah, oh, I, yeah, I, Lord, I yes. big differences, but you can like yeah, both. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I yes. think it gets across the core of the story beautifully. It's beautifully animated, directed. I mean, you mentioned the sound design and music. Absolutely stunning film, I think. Yeah, it really tr- it really makes the most out of what it has. It uses character animation and um, like short split second scenes, and um, squeezes some things together just so it gets it gets all the major themes and um, and major scenes of the manga in there without ever actually telling them. Like you can yeah. figure you um, there there is various little things in the um, in the anime where. You uh, where you can figure out what each character's motivation is and what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Like they add some th- they add some basic small little character ticks or add some characters into the background doing something with their family. So mm-hmm. you can actually like see what they're. You get a little sneak peek of what they're mm-hmm. doing. Also, you can they put in the fact that uh, Shoko's an alien. Oh. <laughs> I mean, they communicate the core character arcs and team extremely well, uh, and even for stuff they take out they manage to substitute stuff in or frame things in such a way that gets the same meaning that you're supposed to take away across so in particular with Nayoka's character arc they take a lot of the some of the resolutions change she has in terms of conversations the director does with Shoko and Shoya towards the end of the manga but they substitute that with a scene where they show that Naoka has learned is learning sign language to communicate with Shoko. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that was a great addition to get across that she is also trying to change. She is also working at, you know, changing and making connection with Shoko, which she had previously 
been refusing to do, mm-hmm. which is something that we see in the manga, you know, through the dinner scenes, through a conversation with Shoya, and then at the end of the manga, then we'll you know, hang out together coming in ceremony. But yeah, I like that scene just to get that idea across very quickly, but mm-hmm. really uh, impactfully. Yeah. Although my boy Satoshi got done pretty dirty. Yeah, Sadashi, I mean, Sadashi and Miki, as her, their entire characters did not translate from manga to on screen. Which actually brings us to Kit's, uh, another one of Kit's questions. So she asks, like, Miki is really terrible to everyone throughout the film, but her actions never really get addressed in the end, as she stays friends with both Shoko and Shoya. So she asks, like, do they handle this better in the manga, or does she receive no punishment? And, yeah, she isn't punished, of course, in Except the manga. by Satoshi. Well, Sadashi does burn her pretty good. Like he's all—he knows the yeah. whole time. He's like—he's he's like—he's like I know that you want to date me, but you're a piece of trash, and I'm just gonna be and like. He, oh. he seems to turn around to her towards the end because <laughs> you know he's asked like, "Hey, do you like uh, Miki?" Like she, yeah, he asks her, "Miki, you know you should do what you really want." Because mm-hmm. Miki's saying that, "Oh, I'll go to the same school as Sadashi," and Miki immediately just says, "Yeah, I want to go to the same school as you. That's what I want," and so. You know, Satoshi sees that she's sincere in that, and then he's asked later, hey, do you really like Miki? And he says, hmm, sure, I like her. I mean, she's like the third most thing I like after, you know, kids and whatever, but you know, I like her. So it seems like she he is warming up to her. But yeah. in particular, in terms of, like, the self-burn, like, the one I really love is, like, this is after Miki's vocal chap, even in Satoshi's, mm-hmm. like, he's reflecting on, like, Shoko's circumstances, how she was bullied, and how she's feeling, like, the guilt she's carrying. And like he's describing it like as his as his own bullying story, mm-hmm. and like Miki is like re- reacting like, "Oh, those people who bullied you as kids are awful." And Satoshi's like saying, "Even the ones who say that they didn't do anything, yeah, they're probably lying anyway." Like Miki is so not self aware <laughs> that the story Satoshi is telling is actually Shoko's and not his, and like she is self burning herself because she is a person who's saying, "Oh, I was not complicit in this," but she also doesn't think she's lying about that. So. Yeah. That's a really great scene. Uh, but Miki, in terms of, no, Miki is not punished. Like, none of the, the characters are punished, and that's not what the story is about. It's not about punishment. It is about personal growth, though. And I think that mm-hmm. Miki does not have the same level of self-reflection and self-realization that the other characters do, but she does show that she is she is capable of change. And she's capable of being a good and kind person. Like, she is trying to be that way. Like, she, she genuinely wanted to get the A Thousand Cranes as a, a gesture for Shoya. Like, and she's really sad she isn't able to do it. And then she, earlier in the series, like, on the big confrontation on the bridge scene where the friendships fall apart, like, she yells at Nagasuke and says, hey, you, you're disgusting. And then later, towards the end of the series, she, like, complicates Nagasuka saying, you know, you're good in a, like, there's, Nagasuka is, like, called creepy or something, or, and then she says, you know, in a good way. Like, she is, she displays more kindness to Nagasuka. So, like, she's capable of, you know, changing the way she interacts with others and sees others, yeah. too. Also, she's one of the only people that she sees. Mm. Um, her chapters in the manga are really interesting in that everybody who she doesn't give a shit about doesn't have a face. She only views the people that she wants to view. But oddly enough, Nagatsuka is one of the people that she apparently wants to view. Mm-hmm. I mean, his face is a little bit distorted, but he's she's still viewing him. Yeah. 
which I thought was really interesting and said a lot about how she how, about how she related to That's him. Interesting. Yeah. So I will say that you you definitely get more clarity into Miki's character in the manga for sure. Yeah, just in general, you know, when comparing both of them, I mean, I, I think the bottom line is that you know the because when I first saw the movie in theaters. You know, I, I came at it, obviously, as somebody who had already read the manga. So when I was first watching the movie, you know, unfortunately, I kind of came at it with the mindset of, well, this isn't in the, this this thing from the manga is not there or whatever. Like, I was a little too analytical of that kind of stuff my first time through. But, you know, w- watching the movie, you know, in preparation for the show today, just to kind of have it fresh in my memory, I I will say I, I think the movie does well with you know what it can what it, what it has the time to explore and put in there mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh you know i i think the movie's just fine but basically if you if you watched the movie first and you thought oh man i feel like maybe this this something or other could have been expanded on it it probably was in the manga and if you like the movie you'll like the manga even more basically is all I'll say. Also, mm-hmm. Corey had to unfortunately leave us partway through the show, but he wa- he wanted me to say that uh, he hates the movie. Um, so it's kind of unfortunate he had to leave before <laughs> we got to this question. But uh, yeah. I-, I do remember when this movie first came out that like it had received a lot of mixed reviews from people online, mm-hmm. solely because of the people who had you know read the manga first. Yeah, which. Yeah. Yeah, people who a lot of people who read the manga were not happy that things were removed from the film. That was like the early impressions I received I heard too, and I was worried but that I actually saw the film and I thought, oh no, like everything that was in the manga in terms of the core team and the central characters relationship, like that's all in here and that's really executed beautifully in this mm-hmm. film. So I was mm-hmm. I was satisfied yeah. with it. Personally I and I don't know if this will ever happen or not, but like I would love to see like a reinterpretation of a silent voice through an actual like TV anime. But again, I, I don't I don't know if that'll yeah. ever happen. But I I think you could easily fill twelve episodes with you know with what's there in the manga. But I don't know. That's just me. Absolutely. Yeah. I kind of don't yeah, want so, to I mean... anyway. <laughs> like show. Like I I th- I think that something like this would be done. The movie did a great job with the sound design and putting you into the heads of the characters. Yeah. And this it's a very monologue heavy manga and I don't think that a TV show would have the direction or the budget to make that interesting. Is it, it like I'm sure like it'd be interesting as like characters talking but the way that the the movie portrayed um uh, put all those monologues into character animation and into sound design and editing it's definitely not going to happen at a TV I, show. Personally, I think if you if Annie was still was still behind it, I don't think it would look as good as the movie. But yeah. I still think it would have a pretty high level of quality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. you need to give the right team to oh, this. Oh yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just like other otherwise, it'd just be a. I, I don't want it to turn into like a I don't know a Phoenix Wright or something where it's something something really really interesting and nuanced is adapted just verbatim and turned or centaurs were it was just adapted verbatim and just it turned extremely boring mm-hmm. yeah thank you mm-hmm. yeah well i mean uh, i was gonna say that uh well i, I knew beforehand because it was announced beforehand that there was going to be a movie for 
a silent voice, and I immediately thought that that's definitely not going to be enough time, just a single movie, to cover everything. So I was ready, prepared for, like, things are going to be cut, some things are going to be cut. And so I was pleasantly surprised, even though the things, things were cut, that it, the movie was able to convey the core of what the story was yeah. about. Mm-hmm. So in, in conclusion, both are good. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I... Except uh, no, we 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 have to. One of us hates it, but he's not well, here. Co- uh, Corey, Corey <laughs> says he hates it. Yeah, but I mean, I'm sh- uh, man. I do wish Corey had been able to stay with us so we could have had a, been able to talk about why movie 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 sucks. Zero <laughs> zero to yeah, ten. Just... Not enough Nagatsuki Wait. Chaplin mustache. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's not like criticism, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll ask him about it next time he's on the show or something. Yeah. Just tell him why he's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> oh! Um, so on the subject of the redemption theme, Kit's last question is, how do you feel about the way the movie portrays the relationship between abusers and victims? Do you think Shoko forgets Shoya too easily for tormenting her during her childhood, and does Shoya earn the redemption he gets at the end of the film? Personally, I, I think the manga does a really good job of not making Shoya too sympathetic because I think there are times where, like, you know, when I was revisiting the series, you know, there were times where it's like, okay, you did all this terrible shit in the past, but you could tell he's really trying to, at least in his own way, he he's really trying to to make up with Shoko, even if he sometimes, or most of the time, probably isn't really doing it in the right way. But I still like that we have moments, like the manga will take its time to uh, to remind us like, hey, like, just because you, you, you do this like one thing, or you're, you know, like, it's, it's, it's gonna take a lot to make up for the stuff he's done. Mm-hmm. And on the subject of Shoko forgiving Shoya, I think the reason that Shoko does hear Shoya out and, you know, agree to become friends with him is because she sees that even though it was years later, she did end up reaching through to him because he gave the notebook back to her. He threw the notebook in the pond, of course, and, like, she went to grab it, but then she just left it there because, I mean, this is not outright stated, but you get the sense that she had given up because it was not working. Like, this notebook she was going to use to communicate with everyone, like, she was not getting through to people. But by Shoya returning it to her, like, apologizing and and asking, like, hey, can we be friends? Why like, didn't apologize? He just said you forgot well, this. Say, well, saying that he feels... <laughs> but yeah, he doesn't explicitly apologize, but he does return, like, the notebook, and he, it, he is trying to make a connection with her now, and that does... In her language, her. which is, I yeah. think, the big thing mm-hmm. that I, 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 what I, well, the, the sense that I got from her was, he not only is, is returning this, he is, ta- he, he's one of the only people that's, that's ever attempted to speak with me in right. my own language, and he remembered what I wanted to do, the gesture that I gave him all those years ago, and what it means, mm-hmm. it, what it means now, that's, probably <laughs> right that's that's uh, that's probably a big thing for her so i'm going to assume that she would be very very 
one of one of her childhood dreams coming true. It's it, yeah. I, I I think that she'd very be very quick to forgive. Yeah, she she feels like she got through to him, and so she, like that. I think that's the foundation of the relationship they form. And then on Shoya's part, yeah, like it's through his actions. Like he, it's not the manga doesn't say that he is deserving of redemption or forgiveness, but I mean, it's he's deserving of like learning to love himself and do right by himself but uh what his through his actions he makes things right to shoko mm-hmm. and that we see that through the series and so that is in that way that he redeems himself yeah like by doing right by shoko mm-hmm. yeah i think a, a silent voice is really good at showing how people can grow and change from the mistakes that they've done in the past even if they were small even if they were big very big in the case of Shoya, uh, people can change, and the story, perhaps through Shoko and eventually through other people, acknowledges that mm-hmm. and appreciates that. Yeah. And, and plus, everything that happened that was bad happened back in the elementary school days when um, the two of them were still elementary mm-hmm. school kids. But even in their high school days, Everyone is still young. Everyone is still like growing up in their formative like moments in time. It's kind of just emphasizing that even though we're bigger now or older now, everyone is still young. And because they're still young and we're still in school, especially, we have that space and that time to be able to grow in a way that maybe adults don't have yet, even though it is possible for adults. But you know, they're still kids, and they're still in school, so they can still learn. Yeah, yeah. And I think this is related to the last question that we have from me, E, O, W on Reddit. Meow. Yeah. <laughs> and they asked, yeah. you know, a good topic to discuss might be the general teams of each character's reaction to the guilt they face from everything going up. So, of course, the, you know, collective guilt they feel in the in Shoko's bullying. And, I mean, this is a subject that we touched upon already with several characters during mm-hmm. our discussion. Uh, I do think that a character that we didn't talk about as much, Sahara, I do think that, you know, her feeling of guilt of kind of abandoning Shoko when pressure was put on her, when she was seeing a bullying and praise to, like, go to school. Like, she feels guilty about not... Like, she tried to learn sign language on her own, but she was never really able to put that in practice to help Shoko. And then she's thinking to herself in the focal chapter about Shoya was the one who ended up reaching out, who thought to reach out to Shoko and uh, make amends for what he did and then reach out to her in turn to help Shoko reconnect with her. But she never put in that effort to reconnect with Shoko on her own. And she's feeling bad about that, feeling like that, you know, she hasn't changed, even though the way people around her treated her have changed. Like in middle school, people were saying, oh, you're so cool and tall you should be a model and she became a fashion designer and became friends with Ueno like even though that all of that changed around her she feels that inside she isn't enough and she's still the same person who like ran away from trouble and then I think that ultimately you know Shoko tells her hey no like we still need uh, what you made like we like we still have something to do and then the chapter ends with the sentiment, you know, never stop changing. So I, I like that message. It's like, you know, you still might not feel like you have changed enough or like you have done enough to make up for 
whatever thing you've done in the past, whatever mistake you've done in the past, but, you know, you can still keep trying, still keep growing. So that's the oldest stuff that's still, you don't, don't, you shouldn't give up just because you feel like you haven't done enough yet. And then also on the subject of Keisuke and Kazuki, Ishida's childhood friends, they don't appear too much in the story, but I do think it's interesting that it is noted that, I mean, Yuena speculates that they separated themselves from Ishida. They started bullying Ishida kind of to distance themselves from him after he was called out in class. And also we see that the way he treated them uh, when they were kids, like he was the kind of person, I mean, Ishida admits to himself he was the kind of person who like made other people hold his bags. Like he was the one who kind of was kind of the dominant person who kind of controlled everyone else to following him, like shove off the bridges and stuff even when they had mm. their reservations, didn't really want to. So, you know, they had that kind of pent-up, like, kind of ill will for Ishida, that kind of, they felt valid, vindicated and expressing once tables finally turned on him in the classroom. But then we do see mm. that they are also, like, they also have grown and changed as people in their own ways. Like, they have their own lives that they've been kind of growing up. Like, in the final chapter, uh, we see that forget which one it is uh, of the two characters i get their names mixed up but one of them seemingly has become a father like we see that he's meeting in the childhood reunion like a woman and kid they seem to be you know a family unit and so like they're they have also undergone changes in their lives and so uh and also specifically with the uh i think it is keisuke who made the music for the film and, like, Ishida says that he's open to reconnecting finally after, like, the events of the story. Mm. And so, yeah, I mean, the opportunity is there for, like, the characters to kind of move on from this collective guilt and then kind of meet each other on our own terms and then move forward from that to forge a new, new connections with each other, repair relationships. So I think it's really explored really interesting across several different characters. And I think that sequence of chapters that is just going on each individual character's like own feelings of self-hate and their feelings of guilt about the entire situation while with Joko was really excellently done as like insights into that. That kind of got mm. what I wanted to get at. Mm. And that does it for our questions. So... I suppose I, that does it. We finally have said our piece on the silent voice. Yay! Yeah. This was definitely a long time coming. And I, I think it's really... Sp- obviously, we recommend a silent voice. If it wasn't obvious enough. <laughs> like, this is seriously a really good series. It's probably one of our all-time favorites, I would say. Oh, definitely. Oh, yeah, this is... Yeah, that's really good. <laughs> All of my favorites are about really, really depressed teenagers that grow a little bit, but don't automatically get better. Fix, have you read uh, Blue Flag or Fruits Basket? I need to. Okay, I'll add those to my <laughs> list. Was... Oh my gosh, Fix. I'm yes. a bad person. Oh my god, this has been a really rough reading month for me, because <laughs> I read Fruits Basket, which is a series all about <laughs> trauma and family and... And then I read this, which is also about a lot of overlapping similar themes, and it's like, oh my god, my heart. It's okay. We we, we have some we, we have some more fun manga to coming up to 
kind of balance things out. That still has a uh, music <laughs> and yeah, Trevor working through. Oh boy, everybody's got issues. Oh god. I'm excited, but I'm I don't know if I'm gonna am I gonna be on that? Probably not, but I'm okay. Uh, with it. Don't think so. But we do need to talk about doing some more stuff together. Soon. Yes. I shall be here forever. You'll never be rid of me, listeners. And I'm we, here for you. And Marco, we gotta do you love some me. more projects for you too down the line as well. You're cool, okay. Marco. Sure. Be my friend. Oh, thank you. Take me to J- take, you take me cool. back to Japan <laughs> so my friends can stop bullying me and asking me to come back. Oh no. <laughs> well, one day yes. you'll be able to cross that uh border again when we are in a pandemic free world. Yep. I mean I can't I can't wait to go back to Japan and work my ass off just as much as a teacher in America, but actually get paid a living wage. <laughs> oh my god. Oh boy. Wow. <laughs> yeah. It's like it's yeah. like being a teacher in America is still like a that's a that that is your life, but you don't get paid for it. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I mean you have to get a second job. They it's not like guaranteed you'll be able to get like your adequate school supplies for your classroom, so a lot oh, of no, teachers no, have it, to buy you, them you themselves. Can't. You can't. Uh, no, even in okay. even, even in our district, which is the richest district, like Minnetonka, the richest district ever, <laughs> you get you, they, they need Kleenex donations because the teacher because otherwise the teachers have to pay for Kleenexes of all things Jeez. out of pocket. Oh gosh, <laughs> we couldn't even get walkie talkies in special ed, which was a big problem because a lot of the kids were volatile. It's it's like we said earlier the mm. the villain of a silent voice is just public schooling in general, really. Exactly. Oh my god. <laughs> International public schooling, get your shit together. God. I mean, people ask me in Japan sometimes, like, what's American, like, public schooling like? And I just say, well, it's, uh, uh, <laughs> it's not good. Oh boy. Yep, that's, uh, we, that, that was, that was basically my entire experience with the, uh, um, with, with like this uh, class where we were talking about our educational experiences in schools around the world and educational philosophy. And whenever I was talking about the American schools, it was always the horror story time. <laughs> it's like, yeah, so you get your funding yeah. from land taxes? What? <laughs> <laughs> How many kids committed suicide? Oh boy. Oh my gosh. All right, we should probably let our guests actually plug their stuff yeah. so we can head on to the ending of the show. Yeah, no. until the next time we can have you guys on to rant more about the poor funding of the American school system and Give the me money. of teaching and public education. Please, please. <laughs> I need money. Well, I, we should uh, let people know. I want to live. <laughs> I want to eat some food. I want to I I move out. Oh gosh. I, I just want to I just want to be able to afford property. <laughs> I know that's uh, I mean more than just top ramen. But it's it's the top ramen. <laughs> it's, uh, it's better than the Seven <laughs> Eleven meals are the best meals. I miss Seven Eleven meals. <laughs> oh my yeah. gosh! But yeah, until we can go into all of that again, we should let people know where they can find you guys and maybe your thoughts on that on your Twitter timelines. Yes, I'll, uh, I'll, yes, I. Okay, I'm gonna go first. I'm Vix. You can find me at Furious Furry on Twitter, or like that's my name, or at Vixie the Valiant. V i x y t h e v a l i a n t. I'm very cool. I occasionally I I, I repost art and I cry about my dad. 
<laughs> that's, I'm sorry, that's not funny. <laughs> yes, it is! <laughs> My pain is humorous. Oh, boy. And, and, whatever, and whatever I'm reading at the time, which is usually super niche, so, like, enjoy that. I don't know. I'm, I'm reading. I'm reading Slayers right now. That's not very niche, is it? Slayers? No, that's pretty. Popular. Well, I mean, it's it's pretty old. It's old school anyway. Yeah, yeah but it's good. Old school, good school. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Gallery's too smart. <laughs> <laughs> I like. I actually like that. I like. I, I like. I like smart Gallery. <laughs> he, he's he's smart enough to know that he's a dumb bitch, and he totally milks the <laughs> hell out of it. Uh. Wow. <laughs> oh my god. Like, but Marco, hey, where can eliminate. people find you as well? What do you do? Um, yes. So my name is Marco. Um, as I mentioned before in the introduction, it's like Marco Polo or Chibi Marco-chan, but I'm not either. <laughs> so um, you can find me at um, my online handle, usually on Twitter, um, 0rec011, Z-E-R-O-R-E-Q-011. Please um, consider, like... Reading my stuff, basically. I mean, I don't write as much as I used to because I'm busy, but please read it. Yeah. I mean, we'll definitely link your article on a sign away from your blog in our show notes for sure. But yeah, I always enjoy your writing. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you very much. Um, yes, yeah, so I write for, as a freelancer for ANN and used to for Crunchyroll and maybe one day again for Anime Feminist. Um, I like writing. Not the most consistent writer, but please read my work. Yeah. Hey, there you go. And, um, you know, last but not least, like we said earlier, Corey had to kind of leave in the middle of the conversation, unfortunately. But, uh, you know, you could find him on Twitter at ImpassionateK. And you should also follow Corey's uh, podcast as well, those being the Taiku podcast. Uh, a podcast that he does about uh, sports, anime, and manga, as well as Manga in Your Ears, which I believe is just his general manga podcast. I'm sure you can find those at basically wherever podcasts are available. And yeah, uh, we definitely want to thank Corian for being on the show as well, and uh, we'll definitely have him on again at some point. So, Corey, if you're listening to this, thank you for coming on. And uh, yeah, I think that's going to be about it. Mom, I think we should go ahead and wrap up the show. Yes, our guests' voices may now go silent, but we still have a few more things to talk about. Thanks again to Vix, Corey, and Marco for joining us for our Silent Voice Retrospective. It was a fantastic conversation, and we were so glad to have their perspectives on the topics of teaching special needs students and bullying in the classroom. A Silent Voice is a series that opens itself up to many different interpretations and analysis, coming at it from different perspectives, and my first few Kuni shoutouts for this episode will be to recommend both the Manga Machinations and the Shoujo and Dom podcasts on the series, as the hosts on both shows have different experiences and perceptions that inform their approach and their feelings on the characters and the themes of the series. And while the manga my conversation in particular was a little more critical of the series and some elements in it, both discussions do a great job of exploring the characters, messages, and nuances of the story. I'd also like to recommend the Getting Animated Podcast interview with psychotherapist Farrah Harris, 
who discusses the series from the perspective of a mother and mental health specialist, and it was very interesting to hear about what in the story rang true for her and what she found a bit lacking. I think her comments about how she felt about the mothers in the series and how they approached interacting with and communicating with their children, very interesting. But speaking of specialized perspectives, I asked Flix and Marco on to discuss the series because of their experiences working as elementary school teachers who have worked with special needs students and in Japanese classrooms especially, and there are a lot of other great podcasts and YouTube channels that I'd like to recommend from other ALT teachers discussing Japan from their perspectives. Japan Station is one such podcast in which host Tony Vega interviews people who specialize in or are very knowledgeable about various topics pertaining to Japanese culture and their experiences with them. Tony is also legally blind, and his story describing his path to going to Japan through the JET program and becoming an LT teacher, and then working for a school for visually impaired kids in Japan was very fascinating, and it speaks to what special needs education in Japan can look like and the unique challenges it brings compared to less specifically tailored schools. Vega also talks about his experiences as an ALT teacher as part of a double interview with James from the Inside Japan podcast, also previously known as the ALT Insider podcast, which is a podcast tailored to describing what it's like being an ALT teacher in Japan and the challenges and experiences that brings. Two episodes of his podcast describe what special needs classes in Japan are like and teaching strategies for these classrooms. James has recently retired from the podcast, though it will continue on with a new host. But it is a great and fascinating listen to learn more about what it's like to be a teacher living in Japan and how to approach the journey to moving, working, and living there. Similarly, Gaijin Goomba discusses the pros and cons of Japanese society in his new Gaijin Perspectives channel, including a video in which he discusses some of the frustrating experiences he's had as an ALT teacher trying to teach English in Japan, but meeting resistance from the teachers he was working alongside, which reflects a lot of the talking points we addressed in this podcast in terms of conservative and unsupportive teaching environments in Japanese schools that don't really seek to help students so much as it goes through the rigmarole of teaching and nothing more. Gaijin's videos are always entertaining and educational, and the videos he makes for this channel are also deeply personal and often emotionally charged. And they're great watches to learn more about what living in Japan is like as foreigner. For a native Japanese person's perspectives on a lot of these topics, though, I'd like to recommend Nobita's YouTube channel, where he makes videos describing various topics pertaining to Japanese cultural values and systemic issues, including disabilities and difficulties in teaching English, racism and discrimination in Japanese society, and a recently heartbreaking one about homelessness and mental illness. His videos are really fascinating, and he collaborates with a lot of foreigners who live and work in Japan, like Ajumaba, so you get a lot of perspectives on these topics as well, to paint a full picture of them. Some of my favorite videos on Gaijin's channel are actually his collabs with Nobita, where he reacts and shares his perspectives on Nobita's top reasons to live in Japan, top reasons not to live in Japan as a foreigner. I highly encourage you to check out those videos in particular, because the interplay of their perspectives on these topics are very, very interesting. That's all the shoutouts I have pertaining to a silent voice and looking at a series, sort of topics in mental health and special needs resources and teaching in Japan specifically. 
But I do have a few more shoutouts related to another series that I think shares a solid voice of themes of dealing with bullying and trauma, mental health issues, imposter syndrome, and learning to trust in others, see them for who they are, and nurture friendships. SSSS Gridman. This series has been on my mind thanks to the series' recently concluded broadcast on Tanami and the new sequel slash spin-off SSSS Dynazenon airing this season, and as such, there have been some great editorials and podcasts on the series I'd like to share. For a general discussion of the series and its strengths as a homage to the original and the tokusatsu genre, Tonali Faithful's podcast on the first half of the series is a really good combo that touches upon its great balance of being a loving tribute while also a compelling character drama. However, the podcast also addresses how not having familiarity with the original and tokusatsu series can be a barrier to entry to newcomers, hoping to understand the nuances of the show and the elements of playing with. And I think that's explored actively in Celia Rose's article for Tonali Faithful, Excess Flash, or Excess Denied. So definitely give that a read as well for perspective of like a newbie to the world of Tukusatsu trying to enjoy Gridman, but not quite clicking with it. Because, you know, there's just a little bit of a difference in visual literacy of the Tokusatsu genre tropes and history. But that isn't to say that the show's appropriation of those nostalgic elements isn't purposeful or thematically integrated into the story, as at the core of Gridman, the safety of nostalgia as a comforting and controllable element is sort of ingrained into its roots and what it's trying to say. And Adam Westcott's article for Crunchyroll comparing how Gridman and WandaVision use the prism of nostalgia as a means for its antagonist protagonists to escape and heal from their grief and trauma by creating worlds in which they can create and control everything, and everybody loves them, only for those worlds to take on a life of their own, and their own inadequacies and their ability to truly confront and face the real issues they are struggling with come to light. It's an excellent read that actually analyzes this facet of Gridman's themes and Akane's character arc, and these topics are among the reasons why I think the show is relevant to folks who enjoyed Silent Voice and want a series that explores similar themes through butts through a more sci-fi it's a real action-driven story instead of a grounded slice of life drama. But my final community shoutouts for this episode is unrelated to media to recommend, but it is relevant to the topic of violence and harassment rooted in bigotry and hatred. There's been a lot of horrifying and appalling violence directed against Asian Americans in recent weeks, including a terrifying and heartbreaking massacre that led to the deaths of eight people. So there's been a call to action to give aid to the Asian American community to help heal and combat Asian American violence. Anti-feminist has compiled a fantastic roundup of various fundraisers and charities to donate to, as well as different resources for mental health support, bystander intervention training, and general education about how the experiences of Asian Americans have been and how to combat anti-Asian racism. I encourage everyone to take some time to review these resources and, if possible, donate to a charity to help victims. We must always take efforts to be anti-racist and fight back against ingrained racism in our culture, and better educating ourselves, uplifting, and supporting people from marginalized communities is necessary and important now and always. There is a lot more to say on this topic that I do not feel equipped or prepared to handle at this time. 
So I think we'll leave our community shoutouts here for now. Definitely give these resources a look. Check them out. But for now, I think we'll head into the wrap-up of our show. And now I think, with those community shoutouts out of the way and our discussion all said, I think we're going to wrap up the show. Yeah, yeah. By telling us where you can find us and where to go. Yeah, yeah. Just before we do that, I just want to say thank you to everybody for listening to this episode. Uh, again, had a lot of fun with the uh, a silent voice discussion. And uh, yeah, if all goes as planned, hopefully on the next episode of the podcast, you will, uh, you guys will finally get to hear our definitely four-hour-long episode, our four-hour-long best of manga for 2020 episode. Uh, we had a lot to talk about. We had a lot of different, like, different series we highlighted. A lot of different moments we talked about. Oh uh, man, those episodes are always pretty long. But we just we ha- like we're trying to talk about our favorite manga moments and stuff from the year. So like, there's a lot to talk about especially from 2020. And so, yeah, I, I hope that I hope we can get that out uh, soon after we, uh, we put this episode up and I hope you guys will listen to it and enjoy it. Just a, again, just a warning that is very long. So there you go. But yeah, I guess with that, all that out of the way, Lum, where can the people find you? You can find me at Lumbermasha on Twitter. It's Lumbermasha a variety of places like an image revelation and this river is a Lumbermasha. That's where you can find me. You can also read my reviews on autoshop.com. We got a lot of books coming in, a lot of books going out. So look forward to more of my reviews on there. And you can also check out my other podcast, my website movies, where we, we don't talk about just movies, mainly anime related, but also Lum Squad, the Earth Outside Focus podcast I do with my good buddy Andrew AC Yushimura, where we are really going through the manga, a deep dive into it, and we're excited to talk about the movies coming up pretty soon. So, look forward to more of that. You can find that pretty much on every podcast platform you can think of by that name, but also on Twitter at Lum underscore squad, and you can also uh, check out my art if you like the art I do for this show, the thumbnails of dryer, the other art I make in general, at my Instagram, at SetArtWorks. Alright, but as for me, I'm Colting. You could find me on Twitter at SniperKane323. I also uh, host a few other podcasts and whatnot that you could find links to over at coltoncorner.wordpress.com. That's my personal blog, where I have a page dedicated to whatever podcast I'm doing at the moment. Again, that's at coltoncorner.wordpress.com. And as for the podcast and, you know, where you could find it, we post every episode of the Manga Mavericks podcast on all-comic.com. That's where we post every episode first. Unless you're a patron of ours at patreon.com slash manga mavericks, uh, where at the $2 tier you will have a chance to listen to basically early editions of the podcast, depending on when we have them edited. Uh, For example, you could have listened to A Silent Voice, our discussion on A Silent Voice, like at least two weeks before before we put this out on the main feed. And yeah, you know, sometimes we'll have episodes of the podcast that we have edited early, and we'll we'll just put them up on the Patreon for people to listen to, so we don't make our listeners wait too long. Sometimes it takes a long time for us to put up stuff. And so, yeah, again, that's at the $2 tier. Or if you want to sign up for the $5 tier, we have some uh, some extra bonus content exclusive for patrons. You know, 
at the $5 tier, uh, we upload a new podcast, a new bonus podcast at the end of every month. Right now, we are we are continuing through our book club read-through of Saint Seiya, the original Saint Seiya manga from Masami Kuramata. And uh, yeah, that's been a lot of fun. It's my first time reading through that series, along with my good friend Doctor from the Ass Backwards Anime Podcast. And yeah, we upload new episodes of that every month. And yeah, hopefully, you know, if, if you guys, if you're interested in listening to those, again, that's at the $5 tier at patreon.com slash manga mavericks. Really, no matter what tier you sign up for, our Patreon is really the best place to uh, support us and everything we do here. And yeah, we really appreciate any support or patronage you throw us your way again at patreon.com slash manga mavericks. But as for everything else, you can follow us on facebook.com slash all.comic or on twitter.com slash allcomic underscore. But if you want to follow Manga Mavericks specifically, you want to follow us on Twitter at manga underscore mavericks or on Tumblr at mangamavericks.tumblr.com for all the latest updates on the podcast. Uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash manga mavericks where we post different excerpts of the podcast and even some exclusive content every once in a while. Again, youtube.com slash manga mavericks is where you can find our YouTube channel. Email us anything at mangamavericks at gmail.com. What are your thoughts on a silent voice and why it's the best manga ever made? Do you have any thoughts on any of the news we covered at the beginning of the episode? You know, just email us anything about like, you know, whatever manga you're reading and just manga in general, the podcast in general, whatever your thoughts may be. Email us those at mangamavericks at gmail.com. We love getting emails and we love reading them on the show. But the most important thing, guys, is that you subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, or basically wherever you listen to podcasts. We're on a bunch of different platforms, uh, but especially on Apple Podcasts, you know, if you leave us a rating or a review, uh, it really helps the visibility of our show and helps helps uh, you know get our podcast to more listeners. And we just, you know, we, we appreciate any feedback you happen to give us just in general. But that's really going to be about it for the show. This has been episode 153 of the Manga Mavericks Podcast of AllComic.com. We will see you guys next time for episode 154. Bye, guys. Sayonara.